everybody welcome to episode number 26 of uncovering unexplained mysteries for wednesday december 21st four days before santa claus comes down your fucking roof and drops presents all onto the christmas tree and whatnot it's already it's almost here here comes and he eats all your cookies and your milk yeah that that fat bastard I, I don't know. I don't think I ever believed in Santa Claus. No, I did. I did believe in Santa Claus for a minute. Um, my, I did. My brother pre- helped perpetuate it because I was like, well, how does the dog not make any noise when he comes down the yeah. chimney? And my brother's like, oh, he, he, he puts some special sleeping powder on the dog and the dog goes to sleep, <laughs> doesn't wake up. Well, for me, I, I believe too until I found Christmas presents unwrapped in my parents' bedroom. That's when I knew that Santa Claus wasn't real. Yeah, they always keep him in the... My parents always kept him in the bedroom. My parents... Like, they were trying to hide it from me in the worst possible place. It's like the first place that a kid would look. Yeah. Serious. My parents would... <laughs> my parents, like, are some of the only people who still have, like, a 1970s, like, waterbed for their primary yeah. bed in their in their bedroom. S- still? Yeah, still. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude. Still. <laughs> they They love it. But anyway, it's got this it's got this big ass like um it's like a canopy but it's like wooden so like that you can put stuff on top of this canopy. Uh-huh. That's where they would put the presents. So I'd always know to like look up there and uh <laughs> I remember one time they bought from um my aunt this guy who worked at my aunt's insurance company, he was a big toy collector. So he had like all these Spawn figurines, Todd oh, McFarlane. Wow, yeah, Todd cool. McFarlane's a uh, uh, Spawn comic book. He had all these Spawn figurines when Spawn was all the rage. Yeah, now yeah, in the nineties. Really yeah, shit about Spawn. Oh yeah, I st- I still love Spawn. Honestly, I'm a huge fan, but um, not not of the movie in the nineties. Have you seen the HBO animated series? I own it on DVD. It is fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's really good. But yeah, I they and, and what my parents did is they positioned these action figures all over the house. So like when I woke up, like all these action figures were like all over the place. It was so <laughs> That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. I had some good Christmases. My my parents usually went all out for. I mean, I've had I had some some uh, lean Christmases, but uh, for the most part, they. My parents, yeah, my parents did a good job as well. You know, I have to admit, um, my dad did too. He did as good as he could, you know, with whatever money that he had. You know, my dad was, you know, my mom and my dad divorced when I was like five. So, you know, I was only able to see him on the weekends, but he always tried to make the best of it. So, yeah, yeah. Christmas this this year's probably pretty lean, but I already got this this microphone that I'm using right now that you guys are hearing my voice through. And that is pretty much my Christmas present from my parents, from my mom and my stepdad. Uh, so. Hell, and, with all the uh, shit you get from all your YouTube fans, man, you don't need anything from your parents. I know, like, Good like Lord. it's shit. I, I even got a, I got a Christmas card today that had like a vintage movie monsters book in it, and a friend of mine is also sending me another thing. And then I talked to my dad, and uh, he said he's going to send me some stuff. We'll see what happens because he said that many times, so I, I'm not going to hold my breath. But I'm hoping he has, you know. Because he just bought a truck, he bought a semi, so now he doesn't have to work for, you know, now he can get all the money from whatever run he's going to get. And I don't think there's any excuses anymore. So, and I bought him something. So I hope that that really 
pushes him, you know. It's like, I got you something for Christmas. Repay the favor. You know, of- <laughs> now now that I have a job, like the past like few years, like the past three years, I, I finally have a job where I'm making like decent money. Um, yeah. I found that like I enjoy and this sounds so like cliche, but I found that I truly do enjoy Christmas solely for giving the gifts that I've bought to my family and seeing them open yeah. their gifts rather than whatever. Because I honestly, at this point, I can just buy for the most part, I can buy whatever they would get me. Like I have the money to buy whatever you know, whatever yeah. they were gonna get me, I can just go out and buy. I'm not, it. I'm not there yet, so you know, I have to pick and choose type thing. Yeah. So you know, I just decided to get my dad a a vintage America's Most Wanted hat because he liked that. Sh- he likes that show a lot, and we had a lot of memories watching that show uh, when I was a kid, staying over at his house. So. Um, and I told him about the podcast, so uh, hopefully he'll listen to it when he's on the road. Oh, yeah. So, yeah see what happens. Cool. Speaking <laughs> of which, if you want to become a fan of us on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, which I I think that it's it's uh, worth considering, it's uh, patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. Uh, you, you get the episodes a few days earlier than everybody else. Um, you usually get them on Wednesday night, and everyone else gets them on Friday, so you get about a day and a half earlier. Um, you can, depending on the tier, you can ask us uh, you know, questions on there or give us uh, suggestions. A lot of uh, This is Fan Suggestion Month. A lot of the suggestions have come from the Patreon because you know, we're going to take those more seriously because people are giving us money. Uh, you can get your own personal story worked into one of our episodes, and if you even if you go for the highest tier, you get a bonus segment um, from the uh, podcast a few times a month. So um, yeah, it's worth considering. Anyway, and we also might be posting you know some outtakes from the podcast sometime, you know, on yeah. Patreon. And uh, I have a vintage. Uh, Mad Magazine parody of Unsolved Mysteries that I want to scan uh, sometime, and then I'll probably put that on there for the Patreon supporters. Guys, don't listen to him. He's been telling me about that Mad Magazine thing for, like, ever since we started the podcast. Hey! I still haven't seen it. I I mean it this time around. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I've just been really busy lately, uh, watching all these uh, movies and stuff that people have sent me. So, all right. So, who, who goes first? Uh, we can flip a coin. I don't care. <laughs> so yeah, this this uh, episode's only going to be two segments. Uh, I don't even really know how to intro the surprise. Um, it's going to be at the end, obviously. Um, we got. I don't know. Should I say it now or should I wait? I don't know. Well, well I, I think we should uh, keep it a surprise. It's okay. our Christmas well, okay, we'll gift keep, to you yeah, guys. We'll keep it a surprise. So it will. You'll be able. You know, to I, listen to it, you know what I just uh, after realized? We get done talking. I just realized I'm gonna have to name it something in the title uh, when we put it up on for the podcast, so people are gonna probably know. <laughs> I know, but you could be like Christmas gift surprise. Yeah, that's true. I guess. Yeah, I guess maybe I could. Yeah, I'll do it like that. Christmas I, surprise. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. You could do that, but I mean, yeah, people are gonna know about it, but. It's hey, we tried, but yeah, and I, I don't think I'm gonna edit any of this out either. This is this is behind the scenes stuff here, um, <laughs> and, and you know, 
is it because I don't want to edit it out because I'm letting you people in behind the scenes? Nope, it's because I'm lazy and I'm really getting tired of editing. That's <laughs> that's why. Um, I guess we can go in. Uh, we've been doing a lot of murders. I guess we can start off with the ice. Well, you don't you typically like it when I start off and then you go in? No, I could start off this okay. time. It's fine. All right, so okay, so we got the Iceman. Which is these are all fan requests, by the way. So again, if now, the show if the show sucks for all, if you hate it every episode in December, blame yourself and your fellow listeners because yeah, these were all the your cases. Point the finger at yourself. Yes. It's your fault. Yep. Um, this is about the Minnesota Iceman. Uh, it's no relation to vin- Vanilla Ice or anything like that. Uh, it does sound like a rapper. Like some really terrible rapper. Who I was wanted like, okay, it in Minnesota. Yeah, I really wanted it to be an '80s, like a 1980s rapper that was like you mean a '90s, early '90s rapper. Yeah. Yeah, like yo, yo, I'm the Ice Man, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, it needs to be more Minnesota, you know, Minnesota accent. Oh, you hey. know? yo, yo, <laughs> yo, I'm the Ice Man, motherfucker. I, I can't, I, I can't do it on the spot. No, yo, I'm the Iceman, motherfucker. Oh, that was more Arabic. That was like Arabian. My friend. I can't do that. (laughs) Which is funny because I was just talking to one of our fans last night from Chicago, and she was talking about (laughs) math. Yeah, so dub bears. Yeah, dub bears. Uh, I I should really be able to do the Chicago thing now because I was just talking to someone from Chicago. We hear Minnesota. Minnesota. It's kind of a similar accent, really. It's like kind of that darn tootin' yeah, yeah, you betcha kind of Sarah Palin thing a little bit. Ooh, let's not bring her up. <laughs> anyway, yeah, this was a request. So the Minnesota Iceman is actually – I actually wanted to talk about it myself because I saw this segment recently and I thought it was intriguing. Um, and there's also a decent amount of updates for this actually as well. So um, – this is the, this is about the Iceman. Um, part of me thinks maybe this story actually inspired the movie Encino Man, which I'm a big fan of. So that was kind of fun because it was like, oh, it's a it's a Neanderthal who's caught in ice. You should have a Polly Shore month on your channel. <laughs> no wheezing the jewels, <laughs> buddy. Uh, so. I just want that. Just this just makes me want to watch Encino Man again. So apparently, in the in December of 1968, a bizarre creature named the Iceman was shown at the Chicago Stock Fair. It was six feet tall and had both man and ape-like features, and it was frozen in a block of ice. A young man named Frank Hansen got possession of the Iceman from this guy who looked like a cowboy who just came in and said, "I found this thing," and you know. I think you might be interested in it. And, uh. I'll tell you what. <laughs> and a man named Frank Hansen. So Frank Hansen then showed it briefly to several scientists and at several fairs. But eventually, there became this sort of uh, controversy that maybe it might be human. So, which would have been a good thing. That's a good thing for publicity, but it was getting too much publicity. He was getting in the papers, local news is talking about it. And this, of course, got the attention of the police, who are all like, you know, uh, we're just wondering, you know, if this is a if this is a human body, you know, this is technically against the law type thing. And instead of dealing with the police, he ended up uh, packing up his ice man, and he uh, fled. Which I mean, if you think about it, you know, you, you have this this um, 
this this sideshow, this circus sideshow, and I'm not talking about American our American politics. Uh, I'm talking about this case. Um, you got this this sideshow thing, and it's like this frozen uh, humanoid kind of thing. And you don't, you know, you don't really think about it, but yeah, I mean, this is a cadaver, you know, this is, this is a, this is a, if it is real, then, then there, an invest, a police investigation would need to kind of happen to be like, well, what's, you know, what's this dead body all about? It's illegal to possess a dead body. I think they were saying in the, in the segment. Um, you're not, you know, yeah. you're not allowed to just have a dead body, you know? Like, no. So then Frank later then turned up after he left, showing off a replica of the Iceman at several fairs in the Midwest. The real Iceman apparently has not been seen since 1968. God, I wonder how bad that replica looked. Yeah, probably pretty bad. Uh, because apparently there were actual real scientists, well, scientists with air quotes because they were cryptozoologists i guess um some of them are real scientists some of them aren't you know people who work in cryptozoology uh so because this is i don't think there's like a a place in college where you try to get your degree in cryptozoology so i could be wrong though. i think you can be I, a si- i think you can be a scientist and in, in in yeah kind of side study in cryptozoology uh, and you know okay well, I didn't know for sure. I know there's parapsychology. Well, no, I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying like I think is in like uh, there's a degree. I'm just saying, in yeah. my personal opinion, I feel like if you're a scientist, you can also be interested in that field and it not yeah. be completely, you know, bogus. Yeah. You're, you're so stuck. scientists Ivan Sanderson and Dr. Bernard Huvelmans examined the Iceman several times and concluded that this creature uh, of some kind was a genuine creature with several with severe head injuries to the side of the face. Um, This case was actually featured uh, as part of the September 25th, 1994 episode of the show. And uh, cryptozoologist Mark A. Hall of Minnesota also appeared on the episode, detailing his involvement in viewing and documenting the movement of the Minnesota Iceman for Ivan T. Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmans, in conjunction with similar tracking occurring throughout the Midwest by his associate cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, then living in Illinois. Now, one of the theories that was posited about what this Iceman could have been was actually pretty uh, plausible, but also pretty fucked up. It was that it could have been a person that was killed and then made up with like fur and stuff like that to make it, and then frozen to make it look like they're an Iceman. So we could have had a murder case, an unsolved murder case, as well as, you know, a sideshow attraction. You wouldn't think anyone would be dumb enough to do something like that, but I guess that is a theory that could, you know. But I don't know if if, if the Iceman looked anything like, uh, you know, on the reenactment on, on the show, like the grimace on this thing was pretty fucking disturbing. It had like... Yeah. It's like it's like left eye was just open all the way and you could see yeah. like the entire eyeball. Like there was like no eyelid and it the other eye was more closed and like it almost looked like the left side of its head was like bigger, like deformed or something. Yeah, like, because it got it, it was severely injured. Yeah, I mean this so, this must be severely injured in the case of like old Looney Tunes his head was smashed with a mallet 
kind of severely injured because it was like all it was it was pretty it was pretty disturbing the uh yeah <laughs> even for the reenactment i was like good lord and that's uh that's yeah so definitely so um here's a little bit more of hi- some history for the case uh promoter and exhibitor frank hansen he stated that the Minnesota Iceman was discovered in the region of Siberia, and he was acting as its caretaker for an absentee owner. Absentee owner, he described as an eccentric California millionaire. During carnivals and fairs of the exhibit, Hansen was once reportedly detained by Canadian customs officials who were concerned that he was transporting a cadaver. While searching for evidence of Bigfoot in 1968, cryptozoologists Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmans examined the Iceman and Hansen's house trailer in Altura, Minnesota, and concluded it was a genuine creature, saying they found putrefaction where some of the flesh had been exposed from the melted ice. Apparently, it also did have this smell to it, apparently, as well, that smelled like a rotting corpse, but... That doesn't necessarily mean anything because uh, a case that uh, uh, a hoax, a Bigfoot hoax at another fair that happened uh, like 10 or 20 years later, I read about, they all they had stacks of rotten rotten meat behind the frozen, you know, the Bigfoot carcass oh to make it, you know, smell like it's a, a rotting Bigfoot corpse. But really what it was, it was a, it was a hoax. It was just like a model of some kind. Some people go all the way for their craft. I mean, they really go go that go the next mile. So well, I wouldn't um, call it craft. I would say some people go all the way for a money grab. Well, yeah, but sometimes it is a craft to be honest. I mean, creating I, it, these it, yeah, these I mean, these somewhat semi-realistic looking uh, replicas of Bigfoot or these other creatures. I mean. It is in a, a craft. It's a, it's a, a craft where, you know, it's a fine line between exploitation and craft. Because I remember going. Well, yeah, it's exploitation, but it's still they're still crafting this thing. Well, I I remember going to the the fair a long time ago in my city, and they had like the world's smallest woman or something like that, and yeah. like they had her. Uh, there was almost like this, you know, in like a symphony that that raised up part in the orchestra pit, so you can't see the director or whatever. It was almost like that. It was like this raised up portion on the stage, and you had to pay money, and you literally walked in single file up onto the stage, and you looked into this area, and there was just like this woman who I guess was some kind of, had some kind of severe dwarfism, and they and and like. She was just kind of sitting there looking at people as you and, and literally you were looking at her like, you know, the that she was supposed to be a freak show. And I just yeah. felt sorry for her because yeah. they, they had like two fans set up, like blowing mm-hmm. air on her because I guess she was hot or whatever. And and it was just sad. It was like, dude, somebody like rescue this chick. And, well, like, I mean, some of them, you know, it is sad, but other ones you'd be surprised. Actually, they embraced the carnival life. They actually like it. Yeah. So, in 1969, Hoevelmans wrote an article in a Belgian scientific journal about the Iceman, suggesting that it was a new species with Neanderthal affinities called Homo pongeodes, and theorized it was most likely shot and killed in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. That doesn't make any sense. Prompted by Hoevelmans naming the Iceman Homo pongeodes, the FBI was informed that the subject might potentially be a human murder victim. 
but the agency did not investigate, possibly due to many believing it was a hoax. Can you just imagine that? Just that scenario. You're in Vietnam. <laughs> You've been drafted to this stupid, pointless war, and you're fucking Bigfoot or some shit, <laughs> some Neanderthal, and you shoot it. As if you didn't have <laughs> enough going on, you know. <laughs> That's like, understood. Yeah. That's like getting into a, like a car accident and you're like crawling out of the wreckage and then you see like a UFO land and it's like, God, can <laughs> can I just have like one thing at a time happen to me that's and then crazy? They abduct you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they probe you some more on top of the car wreck, yeah. Uh, so Sanderson, the then science editor for Argosy magazine, offered an article about the Iceman in the April nineteen sixty nine issue that featured the headline is the missing link between man and the apes. And Sanderson also spoke about the Iceman in television appearances and contacted primatologist John Napier, asking him to investigate it under the official auspices of the Smithsonian Institution. Hansen subsequently withdrew the Minnesota Iceman from public inspection, saying the withdrawal was on orders from its California-based owner. Hansen later provided a new Iceman for exhibit, it described by observers as a latex model that was clearly different from the original. And th there was this one guy that was on the segment that had seen the Iceman like numerous times. So he even was talking about how, you know, when he went and saw it, he was like, this is, this is not the same thing that I saw before. This is clearly a model. And uh, Napier, in conjunction with Smithsonian, made preliminary pre blah, 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 preliminary preliminary investigations of Hansen's affairs, and said he found that Hansen had commissioned the creation of the Iceman from a West Coast company company in 1967, leading Napier to quickly conclude there was only ever one Iceman latex model that he theorized and repositioned and refrozen and had refrozen between appearances. Napier stated that the Smithsonian Institution is satisfied the creature is simply a carnival exhibit made of latex rubber and hair. The original model and the present so-called substitute are one and the same. And you would think this, is, this story is ended, but no. In 2013, the Iceman resurfaced because there was an uh, entrepreneur, a uh, guy who owns this museum called the Museum of the Weird in Austin, Texas, named Steve Busty. And he apparently bought the Iceman from the family of its original owner in Minnesota. Before its big purchase, Busty spent the last two years researching the Minnesota Iceman and trying to pin down its location. He found that the original exhibitor, Frank Hansen, had it in a freezer at his home for decades after its last showing. It's still unclear why the Big Harry Popsicles tour abruptly ended. However, Hansen managed to keep Mr. Freeze out of the public eye until he died about 10 years ago. This is a Huffington, Huffington Post article. I did not write this cringe-inducing pun dialogue. He <laughs> managed to keep Mr. Freeze out of the public eye. Popsicle, God. That's a popsicle <laughs> I wouldn't want to lick. Busty also learned that the rumors of the Minnesota Iceman being discovered in Siberia were untrue. Hansen shot it in Wisconsin. Its eyeballs blown out and its arms broken, Busty told HuffPost Weird News. I couldn't believe it had been in Minnesota the entire time. Hansen froze the remains and put them on display. What's not explained, however, is that what the Minnesota Iceman really is. It's big. Hair covers its entire body, and it doesn't look too happy. 
It's easy to see why many continue to think it's proof of Bigfoot or why others think it's simply a primate from Wisconsin. And then there's some new photos that were actually had not been revealed until now, around the time that this was, article was posted. And uh, Busty wouldn't show Huffington Post weird news, photos of the Minnesota Iceman in its current state. <coughs> Sorry, I'm allergic to Huffington Post's bullshit <laughs> writing. And apparently he got it off of eBay. Wow. Because uh, it was auctioned on eBay. The listing read that this is the actual sideshow gaff billed as the Minnesota Iceman by Frank Hansen in the 1960s. This is one-of-a-kind hoax that was fabricated by mid-20th century showmen. And it was featured on an episode of the A&E show Shipping Wars on the season four, episode six. So season four, episode six of Shipping Wars. To me, when all those wars shows started coming out, that was like pretty much the end. Like that was like the dying gasp of uh, See, TV. I, to me. I, I used to be able to watch Storage Wars, but as it got further on, it got really dramatic, scripted. It's scripted, and then I just stopped. Shipping Wars was a little bit different, though. I thought because. It didn't seem as scripted, at least the first couple of seasons. Um, but of course, it probably has gone down the same route. I just, assume, this reality I just assume all TV those shows yeah. that aren't really reality. I assume it's all fake. The people are actors, and it's just for entertainment's sake. And it's just they're super cheap to make. And that's why you keep seeing shipping so many wars. Of them. I don't think is super cheap to make at all. Like that one, there's a lot of. That have you seen that show? That does not look like a cheap show. Well, I'm just saying in relation to like an actual like sitcom or documentary about where yeah. I think I think it would probably be cheaper to make the sitcom than it would be with Shipping Wars because Shipping Wars, I mean, if you're just factoring in all the kind of risks involved with some of the ship stuff that they're shipping and things like that. So yeah, maybe a sitcom could be more expensive. Probably be only because of the actors though, the actors' salaries. Like something like the Big Bang Theory, the actors' salaries are well. I mean, you think it was shipping wars? You just strap cameras on everyone, and and you know, as far as the show is concerned, that's really their only overhead. Yeah, exactly. So, but with like I'm saying, you're. I think you are correct with a sitcom, especially with like a big one like the Big Bang Theory, because like I was saying, the salaries are so high. Or probably more than the budget, and... more than the budget for shipping wars. Yeah. I don't even know if that show is even on anymore. I though. hope not. <laughs> I really hate reality television with a passion, so I hate I hate all those shows. Cupcake Wars, Cake Boss. <laughs> the only one that I really kind of like, I like Chopped. I I only like anything with Gordon Ramsay in it. If Gordon Ramsay's in it, I'll watch it. Um, well, that's good. I mean, I, I liked. Uh, I really did enjoy Kitchen Nightmares, both the UK version and the United States version with Gordon Ramsay. And I, for the most part, I'm not a big reality TV guy, but I like some of the cooking shows, um, like Chopped and so on. And you also and, you also like Real Housewives of Atlanta too. That's that's a little, no, I don't. That's a little known fact about Mike. I, I do not like that show. I've never seen a single episode You've of seen, that show. You have, actually, you have them on box set, like all the seasons. No, I don't. I don't know what 
Josh is talking about. Um, but uh, the best reality shows were shows like Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. And Rescue 911. So anyway, with this Iceman, was it real? Was it fake? I'm leaning towards it was fake. I don't think this is ever real. Um, I think it was a clever hoax. Um, it was a lot easier for people to think a hoax was real back in 1968 than it is now. And especially with it being frozen, that makes it really hard to distinguish its authenticity. Yeah, that's like your classic, uh, like magicians, you know, how they say it's all smoke and mirrors and all that. That's kind of the, 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 the block of ice is the smoke and mirror in this case. You can hide a lot of detail and, and, you know, you can present the body in a certain way that you want it to look. So say it is a dummy, say it is sewn up, say it is whatever, you can position it however you want before you freeze it to where it hides certain details that might give, give away the fact that it's not what it appears to be. Yeah. So the block I of ice is pretty integral, you know, to, um, it's perfect for the circus. And I mean, Hey, even if it was fake, if it, if it was in, you know, came to Jacksonville and it was in the fair, I'd pay five bucks to yeah, see it. I go check it out. I mean, like I said, there is a certain art to really well done hoaxes. And this seems like one of those examples. So, or maybe it's just somebody from Wyoming. <laughs> Have you seen the people in Wyoming? <laughs> Good lord! I'm just joking to anyone who's listening in Wyoming. No, I, 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 I've been to Wyoming, so yeah, I have seen those people. Do they look like the Iceman? Not the ones that I've seen, but those were my uh, my stepdad's relatives. So uh. I don't know. Every time I, see, I hear the Iceman, I think of uh, the Iceman from X-Men <laughs> and how he, he was... Bobby Drake? Yeah, <laughs> like how he had some of the coolest... Like, he had one of the coolest powers of all the X-Men. He was so wasted in the in the movies. He was always lame, Didn't was barely in it, didn't do anything. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, I haven't seen any of the recent X-Men movies, but I saw one through three, and yeah, he... He didn't, he you know... They could have done a lot more. They could have done a lot more with a lot of the X Men, but I guess it's hard when you have so many of them. I don't think we ever saw him surf. That's what I always remember. I know him doing. that was a big thing for him, um, surfing on the ice, making the. He ice was on a car. Yeah, he was in a cartoon. Wasn't it like Spider Man and Iceman and Spider Man and his amazing friends? It was Spider Man, Iceman, and Firestar. I think. Mike's street name is the Iceman because Mike has so much jewelry and like necklaces and he gets all decked out. Mike, I, 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 th I thought you were talking about the Iceman because I, I'm selling crystal meth over here. <laughs> well, that no. too, but you, it's, it's, you're usually blinged out on the streets. You wear a fur coat and you got like no, a grill. When I think about Iceman, I think of Val Kilmer's character from Top Gun. Oh, yeah. Another movie Which, I haven't seen. Is but that, that's really that's really who he is. Like that's not even acting. For those of you who have seen Top Gun, you know what I'm talking about. That's not even acting by Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer is Iceman. Does that do anything for you people out there? Does that make you happy to know that oh, just another movie dumb old Josh hasn't seen? You laughing? Enjoy it. <laughs> so anyway, um Yeah. 
Uh, that's all I have to say about this case. That was interesting because it was a kind of is it a fo- is it a hoax or is it not? Um, but now that this stuff has resurfaced, that you know, it was sold on eBay. But I know some people will still want to keep the legend alive and cool. You know, if you think there was some actual Neanderthal that was frozen and that's what he was showing, and then that was replaced with a replica, you know, cool. All right, moving on to our next story. Uh, this is another one that was on the list of requests. This is um, the death of Keith Warren. Uh, of course, this is a, your traditional case of police saying that it's suicide and then everyone else saying that it's murder. Uh, I'll let you be the judge. Um, again, I don't remember who requested any of these. It might have been nice. These sound like they could be on Beyond Belief, fact or fiction. You know, it's like, is it fact or fiction? Did he kill himself or was it a murder <laughs> i'm surprised they didn't make a show that was just like suicide or murder like that's that's yeah the show. i know like that's <laughs> like yeah i was i was like telling someone earlier today when i was talking about you know because uh, we were talking i was talking about some other instance of somebody dying and it was like um they asked oh well what was it what uh i'm trying not to get too personal in details here <laughs> Because I don't think this. Never mind. Anyway, the, it was. It came down to like, well, was it murder or suicide? And it was like, well, the family always, you know, typically from covering enough of these, it's like the family always wants to think it's a murder, and and the cops, you know, you know sometimes like to go lean towards suicide. You know, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Um, the family never wants to believe that it's suicide, though. No. You know, but then you got the case of like Elvis, and it's like, well, that was clearly probably a suicide. And yada yada yada. Whatever. So anyway, um, on July 31st, 1986, the body of 19-year-old Keith Warren was found hanging from a tree near his Silver Spring, Maryland home. Uh, At first, his family accepted the police's ruling that he had committed suicide, but as time progressed, several suspicious occurrences that happened before and after his death made his family suspect that maybe he had been murdered. The way he had apparently hung himself was practically impossible due to the small tree used and the fact that two ropes were used in the suicide. It's kind of like this weird, like, pulley rope system. Like, there was one, there was, like, a rope around his neck, obviously, and it was, like, lassoed or, like, hung over this small tree, and then it was tied to this other tree, and it was very, uh, you know... Very complex. I mean, when I saw that, I was like, if somebody's going to kill themselves... I don't know why they would go all Leonardo da Vinci on it, you know, trying to be all really complicated and police systems and stuff. It's like, I don't know, this doesn't seem very plausible to me in terms of suicide. I, I, I can't think of very many su- elaborate suicides like that. Yeah, I mean, usually they just kind of get to the point, you know. It's kind of like a like gun, drug overdose, you know, bleeding out in a bathtub. Yeah. Uh, not not in the Danny Castellaro way, because I don't believe that was a suicide. But uh, anyway, um, also, his family was not notified of his death, nor was there an autopsy done. But instead, yeah, huh? but instead, his body was automatically sent to a funeral home uh, based on basically hearsay. Okay. Um, that he that it was a suicide like the investigator 
heard rumor that it was it could have been a suicide. So instead of doing his job, he was just kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to go with suicide. Um, what a fucking dumbass. Seriously, yeah. to be honest. I mean, that's do your job. That's just lazy. Fuck that guy. I'm so, sorry. Fuck that guy. I mean, this is me. If I was, you know, one of the family members, I would be pissed. I'd be like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> like, oh yeah, well, I just assumed it was a suicide. I didn't. I didn't consult the family or anything. I, I, you know, just. Well, it was just like the, the case we covered. About? It was a case we covered last week with uh, the Tommy Burkett case. You know, it was like they the the cop you know ran in there, did a once over in the room, yeah, and, and was like, yeah, it was a suicide, and yada yada yada. Case closed. You know, it's Christmas. I, I gotta go. Uh, last minute Christmas shopping. Uh, I gotta I gotta get the fuck out of here. Suicide. Sorry. I gotta get that Turbo Man doll. <laughs> he got two. He got he two. Had, he got two. He got two. <laughs> That was a jingle all the way reference, people. A movie I have seen. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. No autopsy. Police sent the guy to a, a funeral home of his choice. Um, of the investigator's choice. In the days preceding his death, several people, including a, na- a man named Mark Finley, which I think was a friend of, uh, of, of Keith, um began searching for him without explanation. Mm. Began searching for Keith without explanation. Also, there seemed to be no reason for him to commit suicide. Uh, On that point, there, that happens a lot, even with actual suicides. It's like, there's no reason for him to commit suicide. It, it's, there's a lot of people actually hide a lot of things really well, especially from their parents. Well, and... And with suicides, uh, a lot of times people will say like, oh, well, they seem like they're in such high spirits, you know, last time I saw them. A lot of times with suicides, uh, a person will experience a a time of euphoria before the suicide because they've finally taken their life into into control. They finally decided that this is what they're going to do and they, they, they feel a sense of control over their life. So it does, you know... And sometimes they, you know, keep that control. Other times, you know, they don't. I mean, like the lead singer of Quiet Riot, Keith Dubrow, I think that's his name. He had recently, you know, gotten off the drugs and alcohol and and things seemed like they were fine. And, you know, he was doing great. And then, you know, a few months later, you know, the news came in that he had committed suicide in a hotel room. Oh, shit. I didn't Uh, know that. Is that recent? That was a while back. But, yeah. Well, and, I don't you li- know, it, it's that's he probably had a relapse of some kind or something. And that happens a lot with people who are addicted to stuff, to drugs and alcohol. And then, it, you know, in that mindset, then it causes them to do stuff that, you know, I mean, just look at Robin Williams, do. you know, Robin Williams was sober for years and years. And he went and shot this film up in Alaska, had a relapse with alcohol and. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily what happened. That's not ne- the alcohol isn't the reason why he killed himself. He had this disease, this really uh, hard to diagnose, rare disorder or disease of some kind uh, that affects the brain, and it caused him to experience dementia. Oh, really? And yes. Oh, so this, this is stuff they found out later after you know he killed himself. 
that probably while he was, you know, in the process of killing himself, he really did not even, he was not in his right mind. He was not in his right mind. He didn't even know where he was. So, um, and dementia can be, especially, you know, for him, it was probably just like, I I don't want to, I don't, I, it's, it's like, he thought the only way he could get out of it was to kill himself. You got you. You guys want to know of a really like grim detail about the Robin Williams death? Um, since we're already like talking about murders all month, um, he did a movie called World's Greatest Dad, right? And he yeah. did he did it back. I think it was like 2010 or something like that. It's really mm-hmm. really good movie. I recommend highly recommend it. Um, in the movie, spoilers. Um, in the movie, his son uh, is into autoerotic asphyxiation. So his son is into being choked while he like jerks off or whatever. This is this is obviously a, a rated R podcast. So if uh, you haven't found that so, out, so so his son it. is like David Carradine. Yeah, well, his son. Well, what his son would do is his son would take like a, a like a necktie or, or a rope. I forget what it was. It was some kind of a you know some kind of lassoy thing. And he'd tie it to his bedpost, and then he would he would sit in the chair, and he would lean forward on this uh, tie or this lasso around his neck, so it would it would choke him, and he could kind of control how much he wanted to be choked in the movie. And his dad came home in the movie from some date or something, and he found his son in his room. Um, and this was not the first time he found him like this. Um, and, and the, the first time he found him like it, he was able to wake his son up and, and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? But the second time he found his son, uh, his son had actually took it too far and he had, he had, he, he killed, he suffocated himself. He died. So he, yeah. found, he found his son dead, so leaned that's... forward, leaned forward in his chair with the shit around his neck. Well, that's the exact same way Robin Williams killed himself. Well, yeah. Well, that's also how David Carradine killed himself, autoerotic association. Yeah, but I just, you know, when I think choking to death, I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, vertically, you know, like like they're yeah. hanging, hanging from something, mm-hmm. you know, but. Well, yeah, what Robin Williams had, he had, uh, it wasn't depression that killed him. Depression was one of, uh, let's call it 50 symptoms, and it was a small one, and uh he had a debilitating brain disease called diffuse Lewy body dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies that took a hold of him and probably led him to suicide. Uh, this is uh, DLB is frequently mixed diagnosed and it is also the second common neuro- neurodegenerative dementia after Alzheimer's and it causes fluctuations in mental status, hallucinations and impairment of motor function. And in fact, a lot of the drugs that he was given to maybe help him with his because he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease three months before he died because he had been showing symptoms including stiffness, slumping gait, and confusion. But those symptoms were caused by DLB, not by Parkinson's Parkinson's disease. And this has happened a lot. Uh, this this DLB has been misdiagnosed a bunch of times by different doctors for different patients. And they prescribe them Parkinson's medication, and that ends up uh, not really making things better. In fact, it makes things worse. Oh, wow. I did, I did not know any of this. Yeah. This is all news to me. It's kind of comforting in a way to think that, like, he wasn't 
he wasn't well when he did that. And it wasn't like he just consciously in his right mind was like, I'm out of here. Kind of makes me feel better, you know, because it's. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's not like Tony Scott, who we don't we still don't know why he killed himself. Who's Tony Scott? He's the guy. He's the director of Top Gun, True Romance, Stays oh. of Thunder, Ridley Scott's uh, brother. Richard Probably Crimson because Tide. he got too close to Tom Cruise's crazy Scientology ass. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's like, I'm kind of a Scientologist. No, I'm not a Scientologist. <laughs> I'm just not going there. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think that's why. I, I don't know. There's rumors that Tony might have had brain cancer or something, but I we don't. We, I don't. I don't think they found his body, so I, I don't even know. Jesus. They might have, but I, I just don't know. Um, but yeah, Williams is, uh, well aware that he was losing his mind and apparently, uh, he had this progressive decline in his mental abilities and began to affect him profoundly. This is, this is all uh, stuff from his widow. And in one incident, a miscalculation with the door left him with a self-inflicted head wound. And this is before the suicide. And she said that he he was well aware that he was losing his mind. He tried to keep it together until he hit a breaking point in his last month. And then she said it was like the dam broke. If Robin was lucky, he would have had maybe three years left, his wife says, his widow says. And they would have been hard years. And it wasn't until his death that an autopsy confirmed that he had the disease. Jeez. Williams had been planning to undergo neurological testing the week before he had killed himself. And by you saying it's debilitating, that means it would have only gotten worse. Yeah. And uh, the actor, he struggled with addiction during his life, um, but uh, he was completely clean and sober in the eight years before his death. Well, you know all the drugs and alcohol they did in, in his yeah. life probably didn't help any of that, I'm sure. Well, his uh, chronic depression and uh, things like and his paranoia returned with the onset of, of the Louis Louis bodies. All right. So getting back to this case, so, um, <clears throat> I just thought I had, I had to explain that a little bit. No, I you think know, I, Josh, I, did, Josh didn't know precisely what had happened. And for those of you who don't know, yeah, I think it's something that definitely should be pointed out more. Yeah. But anyway, this case, uh, it's a suicide or is it not? There seemed to be no reason for him to commit suicide. A few weeks after the death, one of his friends went to the site to where he had been hung and found that the tree that he was hanging from had been cut down by police who uh, said that the tree was quote unquote evidence despite the fact that they had already closed the case. I don't is this know. Is one of those police in on it things? <laughs> I don't know how common that practice is and I don't know. Uh, That's like the cop who asked the guy to burn the bed. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's It's like, you know... And keeping a tree as evidence? Wouldn't you just cut down the porch? How the hell are we going to keep that in the evidence room? Yeah, you know. like a, how, big, how big is your evidence room? Is it the size of a warehouse? Do you have an evidence warehouse? In, in Silver, in Spring, Silver Maryland? Spring, Maryland, I highly doubt it. <laughs> Unless they replanted it on their uh, police, uh, you know, in the police uh, we're like, yard. We really like that tree, so we're just going to... Claim it as evidence. Yeah, I wonder how many, many marijuana plants they've seized as evidence for their own personal investigations. Anyway, um, <laughs> his mother, Mary Cooey, no longer trusted the police. Oh, well, good for you, Mary. 
That's, that's I wouldn't a either. Solid instinct. Solid Shit. instinct on your part. Uh, she uh, began her own search for answers. After being stonewalled by police for six years, she received a shocking envelope on April 9th, 1992, Keith's birthday. This would be one of the worst envelopes one could receive on the anniversary of, uh, or a birthday of a the death of a loved one. Uh, the envelope contained photographs from the crime scene which showed him wearing clothes that weren't his so it's showing the dude hanging it's showing so you're seeing pictures of your 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 son dead hanging from a tree gotta be awful but he was wearing clothes that weren't his um leaves seen in the photos were on the back of his shirt which suggested that he had been laid on the ground and then hoisted up into the hanging position his body was soon exhumed for an autopsy the surprising results showed that there were several de- deadly amounts of chemicals in his body it appeared that he had, in fact, been murdered. Although some medical examiners can cl- claim that the chemicals were from the embalming process. Yeah, I don't know about that. Strangely, the one person who may have had answers into his death ended up dead as well. Mark Finley, who had been searching for him in the weeks before uh. his death, was mentioned in a letter that was with the photograph sent to Mary... Six years after his death, the letter claimed that, quote, Mark Finley will be next, end quote. One month later, Mark was found dead, apparently from hitting a curb and being thrown off of his bike. However, his death appeared to be suspicious as well, and it is believed that both men may have been murdered. Whatever happened to Keith, his family wants to have answers. I think I think Keith was murdered, and I think uh, his friend was murdered too, and I think Mark was trying to warn Keith because somebody was after them. Which in the or segment, someone. in the segment, um, they're interviewing one of his friends who was saying that a car drove by of these three African Americans who were looking for Keith, and Keith mm. being African American himself. Um, his friend said that Keith honestly didn't hang out with African-Americans, so he thought that that was weird because I guess he hung out with people of other races. Yeah. Um, so it, it was like these people who he normally wouldn't have even associated with asking him where he was. I mean, that would be like a car of Cambodians driving into my yard and asking my dad, where's Josh at? And my dad saying he hasn't known and then driving away. I don't hang out with Cambodians. I don't I don't know any Cambodians. So it would be very odd for that to happen. Even yeah. if, even if I myself were Cambodian. It sounds to me it could have been some gang thing. Or it could have been, you know, I, I think they might have saw something. That sound this this sounds like a typical sort of they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. They see something they should should not have. They get away, they run away. And these people who have been doing whatever kinds of illegal activity that they were doing, uh, that Keith and his friend Mark witnessed, don't want any witnesses. And so they don't want to make it appear as if, oh, it's just a straight up murder or whatever. They want to make it appear like it's an accident. So, it's bizarre the 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 matter of death though because because yeah. if it was gang related the the mo for gang deaths is gunshot 
Like I said, it might not be strictly gang related, but it could be some kind of criminal operation. This this like, seems more like a lynching to me. The whole well, it hanging. could be it could be that too, but I don't I don't see why it would if it's if it is connected to the three black men who were in the car, then looking for him, then I mean that can't really be something that's. Or if it was know, somehow, if it was somehow related to the police, I mean that it might, could be that too. And that and that's that's a that's a plausible theory as well, considering how the investigator just didn't even contact the family, just burned this, sent the body in for you know to be buried, cut or down the tree, cut down the tree. Um, that's a possibility. Because you Might know have been some racist, hick, fuck cops. Because in, in uh, this this town. In Maryland, and they didn't like the black kids or something, and decided to do something about it. I don't know because but, going back to our nation's history, hanging somebody is very symbolic. Um, mm-hmm. That that was the primary means of um, punishment, I guess, for slaves and um, just for you know black people in general in the South back in the day. You know, lynching them, hanging them. That was a very symbolic. Um, so way, way could be kill. the KKK. Well, I mean, it could be a, a KKK member in in the in the you know who is a cop. in the police department. Yeah. yeah, I mean the amount of 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 Ku Klux Klan members in the police force is is disturbingly large, which yeah. may not be as disturbing to some people following a lot of these racially kind of motivated things that have been in the news the past few years. You know, my whole thing is is. A lot of times with these cases, I don't comment one way or another just for the simple fact that I wasn't physically there. I don't trust the news media. And if those two things are, you know, my means of those are my only two forms of information, then I really can't have an opinion on a lot of this stuff. Now, some of it is pretty cut and dry that there was police misconduct. But other things, you know, I reserve my judgment, you know, like I, I reserve my judgment until all the facts come out. Well, I feel the same way. I mean, I don't fly off the handle until I know as much facts about certain incident or case uh, as I possibly can. And this is all specula- speculation right now. Even the cops could have done a, a, a perfectly they, they, fine Yeah, they could have done a perfectly fine job. They just they just didn't think it all the way through and made a few mistakes i'm just that, that i'm just happen. like i'm just saying that when it comes just to spitballing yeah him. i'm just saying when it comes to murder if it's gang related that you know three black yeah. guys aren't going to take another black guy in the woods and hang him no i mean i just don't no. see that happening i don't see that happening either that um, sounds more to me like a and the other one where keith is you know mark was apparently found dead hitting a curb after being thrown off his bike. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that could be an accident, but it could be murder. They well, could have saw him on his bike and they just threw him off. And that's it. You know, that's an easy, there's probably a lot of murders that can be covered up like that. as just an accident because well, it does look like an accident. Well, in my interview with Don Devereaux, Don was telling me about how they, the mob was, wanting to bump him off and they were going to make it look like an accident. They they were going to make it look like it was a traffic accident or something like that. So that definitely does happen. Don't think it doesn't, people. That definitely does happen. Yeah. 
But yeah, like you're saying with the hanging thing, that does seem like some racially racially motivated crime right there, like a message of some kind. It just it's such um, a specific way to kill somebody, you know. I mean, especially with it being a black guy, you know. It's it, it, it you, you can't ign- I mean, I'm not saying it is, but I'm also saying you can't totally ignore that aspect of it either. No. Um And also it it does kind of, I think there is a lot of credence and a lot of uh I think I think you definitely should be looking at the police department because of how much detail, uh, detailed stuff that was actually sent to her. I mean, there was an envelope containing photographs on the crime scene, showed him wearing clothes that were were not his. I mean, that's a lot of detail. Yeah, so. this whole thing is very mysterious. So, yeah, it really is. As any kind of an update here, uh, sadly in 2009, Mary Cooey, the mother, died without learning the truth about her son's death. However, his sister Sherry is still searching for the truth. Sherry, by the way, is very attractive. Um, in August 2014, it was confirmed by Montgomery County, Maryland Police Department that the investigation, the investigating officer used hearsay as an unknown, undocumented, and unrelated source to classify Keith Warren's death as a suicide at the time his body was found, asshole. The investigating detective then used the quote-unquote suicide determination to justify sending the body to the funeral home of his choice and having no autopsy performed. Sherry Warren, his sister, using the new information obtained in March 2014, has requested that the case be reopened and reclassified as of June 2014. Which, I mean, Jesus, she's having to bend over just to get the case reclassified, let alone get the fucking thing solved, you know? Jeez. What a mess. Precisely. I think this was a good case um, as far as the suggestion, yeah. the fan suggestion. Uh, whoever suggested this one, um, I think it was a solid one. Um, it's, I'm surprised I, this type of case was not on the Bizarre Murders box set because this is, this is definitely a Bizarre Murder. When it came to them picking the Bizarre Murders, I bet that was a very painstaking process because they had so many to choose from. And I agree with most of the ones they have on the box set. There are a few on there that I'm like, meh. Um, but I'd say 90% of the cases they put on the Bizarre Murders, I, I totally... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Am, am I mean, with. there was enough for multiple volumes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, they could have done a Bizarre Murders Part 1, Part 2, Part 3 easily. Um, but, you know, I don't think they knew how that Ultimate Collection was going to sell. And, you know, honestly, back back in the when it was out, it probably didn't sell too great because it was a limited run. And it was expensive. But I was obsessed with the show that whole time. Before this shit get, and let's just say, let's just point out right now, before this show gets back on uh, Amazon Prime and people start talking about it again, which I know is going to happen, you're going to have all these like fly by well, night fans. I already, I already saw like a, a sub of mine. They're, they're, we watched a movie. They're good guys though. I like them. Um, but they were, they did a video talking about unsolved mysteries, and memories, and it's back and. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna say for the record that like this is this is one one thing that I can say that I've been that I've loved the whole time, whether it was well, on too. TV or not, whether <laughs> it was back in popularity or not. Yeah. Because I know in 2017 on the side of my Facebook it's gonna say trending and it's gonna say unsolved mysteries, which could be great for the <laughs> podcast and it's gonna be great for my uh, YouTube video as well. But uh, you know, it, it's it's this is shit that I've been into. You know 
forever my whole life so well, both of us so. yeah, yeah yeah exactly so the fact that my girlfriend got me that well my ex you know but got me that way back when it's like i i kiss that thing good night every night no i'm just joking <laughs> really i'm you know that's like probably the only like rare thing i have in my i finally i have a few rare titles and stuff but i did finally get myself one set i got the ufo set as you all know people who follow us on facebook and I finally got that for an affordable price. So, you know, twenty dollar. It's actually twenty two, but that was still a really good deal because apparently it sold for thirty bucks when it was brand new. And this was an unopened, like completely brand new set. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm bidding on ghosts, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. If the stream, I have, if a, fe- I have a feeling it's gonna go like I. I way up and then i'm gonna have to i'm gonna lose it like last minute or last second or some bullshit <laughs> as usual on ebay bids oh god i know that's <laughs> how that's how it always is nowadays it's like everybody just has bots now that like auto bids for them like i try to snipe people back in the olden days i could do it but now it's impossible to snipe anyone because they out snipe you because they have i don't know maybe a better internet connection or they have a bot or something they have a bot and i think that's just cheap yeah that's shitty. it's yeah but you know that's how ebay is they don't give a shit they don't care if you're using illegal bots or you know they're not necessarily illegal but they don't care if you're using you're cheating to get the items but you know and the ones that i hate the most are people who buy it and then sell it for like double the price yeah, they don't sellers. even want the fucking item yeah, like all those fuck faces that grabbed up the uh, NES classic, the NES yeah. classic, yeah, and they're, they're scalping them all over. I, I saw a, a picture on Facebook of this guy with like ten of them, like a like, stupid grin on his face. It's like bought out the whole store. I'm like, fuck you. I hate scalpers. If people would stop buying this crap, then pe- then scalpers wouldn't exist. But you know, they're. There are those fanboys well, out there. Scalpers wouldn't exist if they put limits on shit, or if Nintendo actually gave the stores a good amount of fucking units. Yeah. Target only got like three. One store only got three. Three total. By the time that they said they were announcing, oh, we're going to have NES Classic in the store, they were already sold out. So you had all these people waiting outside to go into the store, and then it's like, oh, sorry, we don't have any. And then people are pissed at the guy at the, cl- at the counter because, what do you mean you don't have any? It says on the on the, on the the ad and all this stuff that says that you have it, and I'm like, we don't have it. I'm sorry. And, I mean, honestly, <laughs> Nintendo, how hard is it to take a board with s- uh, some ROMs on it and stick it in that plastic yeah, Nintendo show? doing the same thing that they did with the amiibos they're creating a false sense of rarity at least so at least you after can, the uh, amiibos you know they did that with the amiibos and then later they're like oh we did make more here they are and now they're not rare anymore I'm gonna get that NES Classic Edition, but but I ain't I ain't spending more than retail price. I mean, I'll, I'll wait. I don't give a fuck. I don't need it. I have all those. I if I don't, I have. Most I don't really necessarily need it anyway because I have something called an emulator that has all of the. I can, I have all of the Nintendo games, <laughs> and I can use my, uh, I can use a remote, not a remote, a calculator, not a calculator, a controller. Jesus, Mike. Ah. <laughs> Oh, 
Yeah, so anyway, um... I could use a controller that isn't, like, super short. Like, their controllers are super short for that system. Yeah. And they charge you extra for extension cords. Yeah, that's Nintendo. They've they've made some missteps. Well, I have 30-something games, so it's like... At least make it so you can load other games on it. I don't know. I think it's cool for what it is, but anyway, I I, I feel uh, I feel the audience uh, waning. Right, I could talk about this all night, but I feel the audience going, "Oh, wants to stop talking about video games," or maybe they like it. I don't know what you people like anymore, honestly. I I I, I honestly don't think they would have a problem with that because I know a lot of people probably listening to this are probably into games and are probably like, "I want one too," but I can't get one. <laughs> Do you people play games out there? I'm asking you. You. You listening right now? Yeah, you know who you are. Yeah, you. Do you do you like games? <laughs> Why? Why not? What's Can your you problem? Imagine there was an unsolved mysteries game of some kind. I wonder what it would have been like. Now, I I, I was I would have loved to have seen an unsolved mysteries pinball machine. I think oh, they could have. Oh wow, that would have been cool. Because they did one for Rescue Nine One One, so I'm like, they could have done one for unsolved mysteries. Well. John and Terry are very, as we know, uh, stingy with their. Uh, I could just imagine intellectual the board. property. I could just imagine the board having like the logo in the middle, and then like a digitized Robert stack on the on the thing, you know, where it shows like multi ball and how many points you've scored, and like with new quotes recorded by Robert Stack. <laughs> And, like, maybe there's, like, a Bigfoot or something on the board and some ghosts and things like that. And plays the theme. I'm thinking about getting an Unsolved Mysteries tattoo. You think John and Terry are going to come after me for that? <laughs> I don't think they care about that. Uh, we want that swatch of skin that has our logo. That's our copyright. We don't want you, we don't want you walking around and people thinking that you represent the show in some way, shape, or form. So... <laughs> If you could just graft that skin off of you and not have it on your body, that'd be great. That'd be pretty embarrassing. And speaking of embarrassing moments. Yeah, I have a... Uh, so last week we did a Q&A thing and um, we had a few questions kind of spill over. But one question in particular, this girl asked um, for me to say, name a most embarrassing moment. Um Again, I'm not going to share some of my most embarrassing, but I actually thought of one that would have been perfect to share on the show. And I, I kid you people not, this is 100% real. This actually did happen. Um, I had a botched um, sexual experience because of Unsolved <laughs> Mysteries. What? <laughs> um, I gotta hear this. Yeah, so... It was my first, well, not my, well, yeah, I think it was, like, my first, it was a chick I lost my virginity to, okay, and this was, like, I had never, I would never had sex before. I'm just letting you people behind the curtain of my life. Fuck it. <laughs> what, what's the worst that could happen? Um, so, we're at my house or whatever, and, um, and, and my dad leaves for work, and as soon as he leaves, like, her and I are all alone, so, like, of course, as soon as he leaves, it's, like, time to get it on you know finally i get to experience what all the fuss is about i was like 17 years old um there's a tv in my room at the time and we're on my bunk bed and you know i'm you know without sparing you all the details um 
we uh, we go to to get it on and um, on the TV it's on Lifetime and um, Unsolved Mysteries is on and um, I don't even remember what segment it was but it was like some murder or something like that and so like you know we're making out and then we start doing other stuff and you know I, I start the process of coitus if you will and so I'm going at it and like I, I'm, I, I'm catching myself watching this, like looking over at the TV every now and then, you know, because like I really love the show, you know, because so I'm like looking and I'm like getting like more and more kind of <laughs> involved in the story. <laughs> and I'm like that. And then before I know it, like th- as a man, you know, I, I was no longer standing tall. <laughs> I had lost all confidence in certain areas and it was because I was so distracted from watching Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> on TV. <laughs> so I literally, we literally, like the first time I ever had sex with somebody, it would, was not a completed process because I got distracted because of Unsolved Mysteries being on TV. And now that the show's not on TV anymore, looking back... I don't regret a thing because I was able to actually watch it when it was still on TV. <laughs> so you're one of the only people in the world, probably the only one I could think of that can say that they were cock blocked by unsolved mysteries. By Robert Stack. By Robert Stack. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is great. That's classic. And then we I, waited. Then we waited ten minutes and uh, tried it again, and it was successful. Yeah. But however, the first time it 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 uh, yeah it was ruined by that. Um, I thought it would get make you more excited. <laughs> I don't know, you know, talking about murders and like, stuff. Yeah. No, I mean, if, if if it was a UFO segment or something that came on, no. No, see, I mean, I, well, I, I get excited, but in, in fear, so it actually kind of goes the opposite way for sexual libido, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, no, I, I can't get excited in that way when you're scared. Um, so that, um, that was probably... I don't mo- really have anything that amazing but i do have another one that's tied in with acting again and this one was i was i took an acting class at a pcc and they had this whole sort of challenge thing we're like oh 48 hour challenge like stay up for 48 hours straight what memorize lines and do like a a little you know performance that's physically not like healthy to for them to tell you to do that it was not it was it was but i have to admit that admit this though i i did uh there my character was supposed to get kissed a lot so that was fun playing spin the bottle and doing that kind of thing um so i got a lot of kisses out of it uh some from some pretty hot chicks some pretty hot uh, drama chicks um, but what's embarrassing about this is not that it's that I was just so fucking tired. And what's really embarrassing about it is I didn't, I could not remember a single line of dialogue when I was on stage. I couldn't remember anything. And my improv skills were non-existent. And I'm usually really good at improving, like just thinking about stuff on the fly. I couldn't do it. My brain was just completely shot. And what's really embarrassing about it is not not just that I couldn't remember any lines, not that I was just struggling to improv. It's that my old high school acting 
teacher was in the audience. <laughs> so the same guy who managed to help me get out of my shell and and did a lot for me by having the girls in front of me while I'm singing Heart and Soul, that same guy was there on that end of that 48 hours stupid acting challenge where I was just failing right in front of him. That's like the karate kid kicking uh, that guy's ass, and then Mr. Miyagi parts ways with him, and then Mr. Miyagi shows up to, like, you know, the karate kid's UFC match, and he and Kevin ends up getting his ass handed to him. Or, no, Daniel, sorry. Dan- Daniel. Da- Daniel. Kevin. I don't know why I thought Did Kevin. Did you watch Home Alone recently? Yeah, <laughs> I wish. I should. That's you can imagine Kevin McAllister in a UFC fight and just get his ass kicked. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that yeah, that'd be like Daniel in, in a UFC fight, and he sees Mr. Miyagi in the crowd. Or karate, karate, more like a karate uh, championship. Yeah, a karate challenge, and yeah, and he just gets his ass handed to him, and Mr. Miyagi just like puts his hand in his face or his face in his hand, and he just kind of like you know just shakes his head in shame. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I could see how that'd be embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, that that was pretty embarrassing. I was so tired though when I got home that I. I microwave like a, like some kind of uh, it was like a hot pocket or something, and I flipped on the TV, in the den, and I just passed out. Well, that's stupid. Why? What was the? What was the whole like? I didn't even eat the hot pocket. Like the the microwave beeping didn't even wake me up. <laughs> well, what? actually, I got the hot pocket first, but I didn't actually was I didn't even get around to eating it. I turned on the TV, and then it was just boom. <laughs> What was, was the rationale? Like what was the methodology and rationale behind? Oh, we're gonna make all of our actors stay up for forty-eight hours. What, like, what, what was I, that? I don't, I don't know. That's I have no nuts, idea. and I wouldn't have done it. I don't care what, I don't care who I work for, or what I do. Someone tells me to stay up for twenty or forty-eight hours. I'm telling you, you can go fuck yourself. Especially <laughs> with my mental problems that I have. Good lord, that drive me crazy. So that's. That, that was a crazy story, I thought, and I thought it was uh, worth sharing. And uh, that that's really gave me perspective on, you know, when you don't get any sleep, it's it's like you're drunk, really. Well, at it, first it starts out like that. Then, then you literally start losing, like, grip or the yeah, reality. Which is why I don't want doctors and surgeons operating on me because I haven't slept in a couple days. Well, yeah, duh. Well, because they had that sort of like initiation shit, you know, for a lot of the, you know, would be doctors or they have this whole stay up and. I haven't heard about that. That's some work. That doesn't sound prudent at all. No, it doesn't. And I think they've stopped doing that. But that used to be a thing. So, so. we have a, another question that spilled over and it's from one of our loyal Patreons, uh, Jessica Yawn. I'm probably pronouncing your last name wrong. She asks, I know you guys are into UFOs, so what would you consider your least favorite topic? This is for both of you guys. I answered it on the po- on the uh, Facebook page, but I figured it was worth um, mentioning on the uh, podcast, too. Um, Boss loves. Yeah, I said I, I, I think I can speak for me and Mike both. when uh, we, we, our, our least favorite st- topics are lost loves. Um, that's why you... You've only we've only covered one lost love ta- uh, t- segment on this entire podcast, and that was on episode number one, uh, and it was a guy who ended up getting his son back, who uh, was his son. I thought I thought that one was actually I don't think that was a lost love. I think that was a missing person. Was it? Yeah. It was and Ar- then it Arthur was... Kropopoulos or something like yeah. that. Yeah, 
That one was interesting, though. So that one actually was... So every now and then, like, I like the ones where there's, like, a guy who's in Vietnam who's trying to find the the person, like, the nurse or whatever who was on duty who really helped him and to recover from some injuries that a lot of people would say were, were unrecoverable and so on. Yeah, but, any of the military lost loves are good because, like, they, they'd be, like, I think I remember seeing one... Of uh, this German, like World War Two soldier. Oh, that one! That one was great. Where he he ended up going out of his way to help this uh, this uh, I think it was a Jewish family. Yeah, like that was cool. But but and that was a Christmas uh, segment as it, well. If I it's so correctly. hard to it's so hard to know that that's what that segment's going to be about before you watch yeah, it. Because most of them are, oh, my sister, my brother, my mom, or my dad are missing, or I'm not able to find them, and as I want to reunite with of, them. You know, as a result of, of uh, us being adoption. so impoverished, we, we became wards of the state, and we got separated, yeah. and then be, with the help of the, the show. The one where the baby was found in a hat box that was, that in the middle of the desert, that was, that was kind are of... Are you talking about the plot for Seven? <laughs> no. What's in the box? <laughs> Uh, I've seen half of that movie. If that but counts. most of the time, they're just the same, and that's why. I mean, I, I, hey, I got to give the show huge credit for helping these families and and reuniting people with their lost, you know, loved ones and so on. That's great. It's wonderful, but it's not really that entertaining to watch. Yeah, it's not that interesting. Uh, I I do understand the importance of it in the uh, context of a regular episode of Unsolved Mysteries, where you literally have four segments you might have two of them are murders one Murder. of them's one yeah. of them's paranormal and they would couch in the lost love as kind of like a heartwarming yeah. kind of palate cleanser you know so i told it serves its purpose yeah but there's other ones that i don't like as well like I, i'm getting i'm really getting sick of the it's a suicide but no it's not like it that's that's been like this one was an exception we talked about because that was actually pretty interesting there's been other ones, though, where it's just been kind of like, okay, all right. I, I think it could go both ways. <laughs> um, and or it's ones where you're like, I think it is a suicide. <laughs> um, but uh, it just it just gets repetitive after a while, you know. And other ones I definitely don't really care for are a lot of – like there are a few of the Miracles ones I don't mind or Psychics, but – some of them I'm not really, especially the miracles, because a few of them, like Padre Pio, I thought was a good one. Yeah, and uh, the one about the guy with the staircase. Yeah, that one's cool. Uh, I like Father and, Solanus Casey. That one's a good one too. Yeah, that one's that one's that's a good one too. And and the there's like a light. The guy gets struck by lightning. That's yeah, a good one. That's too. a good one. Life after lightning. Yeah. And I remember one where there's like some. I don't even know if this is even on the box set or even in, in any of the segments that I have because I haven't come across it yet. And I remember it. It had to do with like an ambulance and there was like somebody seeing an angel or a, a nun yeah. or something. Uh-huh. That comes out in front of the ambulance and say or, – or, No, or... not that one. It's a different one. It's a completely different one than that. That one is awful. Yeah. That's a terrible one. Yeah, speaking of which, we're, at some point here, we're going to do an episode that just focuses on some of the worst segments of like Unsolved Mysteries. Dear Lord. Yeah, that one was so bad. 
The because they're you know <laughs> we love the show, but we but we got to point out the warts and all. You know, it can't just be praising the show. We got to sh- we got we got to show the stinkers in there too. So and now when I think about Mystery Rock, is kind of shitty. Like when I look back at it, it's kind of a bad segment. Mystery of the Rock like, used to be a Patreon exclusive, but when I had to rebrand everything, we just didn't. Even yeah, because yeah. it's it's kind. Of, we might talk about it on the worst of. Because looking back at it, it's it's pretty lame. Uh, there's really nothing mysterious about it. It's just a lot of like hearsay. There's rock we found in the woods made us win, made us had gave us all this good fortune. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> There is one. There is one that I can remember where uh, it was this this woman the who chair, kept, chair of death. Yeah, that. Oh, I like that. I like chair of death. I like that one. It's quirky. It's it's outside of unsolved mysteries normal. Yeah, yes, but it's kind of in the same vein as Mystery Rock, but it's not as bad as Mystery Rock. It's not one of my favorites. But. I like it just because literally everyone who sat in the chair died. Like everybody. Yeah. Like you know. But I remember one where this girl kept having dreams of her grandpa. And, <laughs> I just saw that recently. Yeah, and, and like, it, you know, she would tell her dad about this stuff. And, like, the dreams were, like, really accurate about things that actually happened. But, yeah. like, the reenactments were so corny. Like, the grandpa, yeah, did, did you get those eggs that I wanted? Did you make the eggs? And it showed his stupid face. And it was just like, oh, yeah. this is bad. Is that the one where it's, like, he's he's getting ready to, like, write some letter to his his like daughter or something because he passed away is that the one you're talking about oh no you're talking about the one where um the the grandfather comes to the um that has the same kind of cringy acting i thought yeah that that one's kind of heartwarming and that one's kind of touching but yeah those are those the and then and then there's other ones that it's not that it's bad or anything, but like the epilepsy pooches is what it was called. Um, I like that one because you know I thought it's not that was a really nice story, but sweet. at the same time, it's not really unsolved. Right, it's mystery. sweet. It's just not the unsolved mysteries that I like. The I mean, grittier. the pets who got lost was was more unsolved mysteries than that segment. Yeah. I just like the more grittier, uh, grittier. Well, so do I. I can watch. I can watch those ones though, because I. I mean, think about it. It is kind of amazing what some of those pets did. Oh like, yeah, how that sure. they do that. Like that's more with the epilepsy pooches. It's like, you know, maybe it's just the dog is is more sensitive to certain things than. No, I mean, I think it's great. I think it's great. Yeah, that, it's that, a great segment. That they had but, like that. it's not one that I'd watch over and over again. That's yeah. for sure. But, you know, yeah, with the Miracles ones, it can get kind of like that, where it's like, I don't know. Some of them get a little bit like, I'm like, uh, I, I'm not really a religious person, so maybe that's why. And then it gets kind of, really? It's like, are you sure that wasn't just, you know, uh, a coincidence? Is it really a miracle? Um, but other ones... And some of the reenactments are just terrible. The one where the guy goes to hell was bad. Oh my god, that one was <laughs> that that piece. Okay, let me tell you something about that one. Storm in hell. So this guy like 
uh, I guess, dies in this Paris hospital, and he was, like, this mean, evil man, and, like, he has, there's, like, this, this piece in the segment where he walks into, like, the hallway of the hospital, and he goes into, like, this big room, and there's all these, like, people who, uh, who look evil, who surround him, and they're saying mean things to him, but since it's network television, they're only saying, like, very PG things, like, you yeah. suck, you suck, <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh, and then he, like, pitch, then he saw in some bubble, like, uh, like on the screen, he saw some CGI bubble of him as a little boy, bubble. Uh, uh, him as a little boy praying, and, Fucking and bubbles, but he's like singing like this little boy in this segment singing. He's like, uh, what what song was it? It was some... he's like, I love Jesus. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it was like the most Jesus annoying, <laughs> annoying, grating kid's voice ever. And, and like it, it, it was so bad that on the Dennis Farina revamp version of that, they totally cut that that part out. <laughs> and, and that is the one time for the revamp where I go. Applause to you, sir. I agree on on taking that part out. Like that was that was cringe inducing. Um, we're we're specs were bad too. We're 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 spoiling our um our worst of uh, unsolved. uh, But you know, hey, it's okay. It's a it's a taste of things to come. Yeah. Uh, There's there's other really bad things in that segment too. So. Okay, so uh, up next, we're getting to the Christmas present to you guys. Um, I guess on the I guess as I'm I'm just not gonna um. Label Man, I don't know. Maybe you should. I don't know. I don't fucking know. This is all going to sound really silly if I do end up labeling it what what it is on the title. Well, we're silly anyway, so silly boy. I, 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 I think people are used to that. Okay, so um, I'm not going to say how, just because I don't like getting out, you know, things that people might know about things with things. But anyway, um, the director of photography for over 300 unsolved mystery segments found me on the internet and said he liked something that I did and I gave him my email address just on a lark and I was like well email me I'd love you know personal message me he emailed me and we actually um I got in touch with him and me and old Mikey boy here had an interview with Kevin O'Brien the director of photography for unsolved mysteries for over 300 segments and we have that interview and um, yeah, it was. And it's a it's a really good one. It's a perfect Christmas present for you guys, just in time for the holidays. Yeah. So, um, without further ado, um, here's that interview. Hope you enjoy it. Well, uh, thank you for um, commenting on the video and um, you know responding to me and all that. Um, we were super excited when we you know heard about you being the director of uh, photography for 300 plus episodes of unsolved mysteries. That's crazy. Well, 300, 300 stories. So, okay. I don't think there were 300 episodes, but 300 stories. So they're usually like three or four stories in an episode. That's still, that's still a lot of segments. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a great show. I have to say, so how it was a lot of fun um, to work on. How did you get that opportunity to work on that show? Well, um, I had Terry Muir, who's the one of the two uh, producers of the show. Um, I had worked with her at a company called Dave Bell Associates, which was the first place I worked when I got out of school. And um, so we had worked together on a show called On Campus, where she was producing and I was shooting, and then moved on to we both were doing uh, various things at the company. 
and they got this um I think it all spun off. They got this special to do called Missing. And um, NBC liked it. And they said, oh, let's do a... They were, they were trying to figure out what to do around it. And so they did a kind of pilot for Unsolved Mysteries. And um, I d- wasn't involved with the first pilot. I was on something else. And then... Because um, we were both... I-, I had left the company by then and I was freelance. Um, and then the, th- I think it was the third special, and I can't remember if that one was still hosted by Carl Malden. I know Carl Malden did, uh, was originally going to be the host, I think, and then he had something else going on, and so he couldn't. And at some point, Robert Stack stepped in, which, of course, was what, you know, that's where it all began. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so the third special I was where I started. I, that was uh, 1986, and so I, I worked on the show from then till it was over. So it was. Uh, that's how I got involved. Was I? Had, I'd worked with Terry, the producer, um, you know, some years earlier, and for on various projects. That's awesome. So. Um... Me and Mike have kind of assembled some questions for you. Um, I think Mike uh, Mike's a big movie guy. He has, I think, he yeah, has, he has better yeah. questions, he has better questions than I do. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I got one right here. Uh, this is about one of six. But uh, how about uh, walk us through a day on the shoot for the show? Uh, what was it like? What were the challenges, if any? Well, the biggest challenge for the show was in the beginning, we would go to all the real places to do the story. So if the story was in, um, you know, Dearborn, Michigan, that's where we'd shoot it. And we'd try and do all the interviews there and do all the recreations there. And sometimes there were multiple locations. So um, you couldn't always do that. But, you know, in the early years, everything was done on location in the actual places. And so there was a lot of wrangling to do to set that up. And uh, also, we were shooting film, which has its own complications. Um, And so a lot of times, there was a lot of logistics of interacting with the town and getting the places we need to shoot and finding the people and sometimes convincing the people to be interviewed. Um, So... Frequently, we would do, when we could, we'd do all the interviews and then do the recreations so we knew what the interview said. I mean, they knew the story ahead of time, but, it, you know, you never know what people are really going to say. And a lot of times, we would um, get to a location, we'd start doing a, a recreation if we didn't, or sometimes we didn't have an interview with somebody. And we'd realize it couldn't have happened this way. When you go to set up the recreation, you realize it couldn't have happened the way they said it happened. <laughs> so that, that was a dilemma. <laughs> and um, sometimes uh, the biggest challenges were um, it was you know it was a kind of a decent sized machine of all these different things that had to happen with people for the recreations doing art and. Um, props and stuff but all in the real places so they didn't have access to the kind of you know hollywood supplies you usually have so they had to be creative i remember our um art director billy jet once we needed to do we were doing a story about a co- tunnel of cocaine underneath the border with mexico in oh uh, i love that one that's a, one. Great, that's a yeah. great story 
Okay, so in that story, there's a scene where the uh, drug dealer on the Mexican side is in his home, and they're playing pool, and the pool table lifts up on a hydraulic lift, and that's where the tunnel is. And what we did is we found a gas station that wasn't being used that had a lift, and Billy Jet built a set around that to make it look like a living room. Oh, wow. So awesome. I love so, that ingenuity. That's there really was a cool. lot of MacGyver stuff like that where you just, you don't, you know, you just got to figure out something to do. Um, we had a story about this woman with a past life kind of uh, flashback memories of this guy who was a sailor on a ship in World yeah. War II. And the story was in Arizona, but there was some scenes in Hawaii. And we were at that point, it was like, well, we're not flying to Hawaii for those scenes. So our art director got all these tropical plants and we found this condo complex that had a fake lake with a wave machine. And so we basically built a set of all these, you know, tropical flowers at the edge of this condo complex in Arizona. So we shot Arizona for Hawaii and I just, I couldn't believe it could be done. But then I was like, well, okay, we did it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of things like that. And, um, you know, it was, that was the, for me, it was one of the better parts of the show is going to the real places, you know, seeing the real people and, you know, interact with the people in the town. Um, we had one in Texas where uh, it was a period piece and they, they closed down. It was a small town. I can't remember the town now, but they, they closed down the entire downtown section of town and everyone brought their own period costumes and wore them to be extras. And, you know, so it, the response of the public in America was amazing. These towns would just welcome us, you know, mostly with open arms. There were occasions where the town was run by somebody who we thought was going to go to jail for the rest of their life, and then they weren't so welcoming. But, <laughs> 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 but that's rare. <laughs> A lot of times, um, I was surprised at the number of times that there were stories where people in town were afraid to talk. But when we came... They felt there was some protection in that, and so um, things would happen. Cases would get solved just because people felt like, oh, well, now it's going to be on TV, and so I can talk, and I won't be the only one, and they won't just you know, put me in a ditch somewhere. But we did a story in the Arizona desert about this real estate guy who got involved with drug dealers somehow. I think he was... I don't know if he was their accountant or something. He was an accountant. And um, these guys became unhappy with him because he figured out that there was all this money laundering going on. All this real estate was being bought with stolen money. And so they took him out of the desert and they painted LSD on the back of his throat and left him there naked. And when we were out there, we are like, well, are they going to do something to us? And there was... Yeah. There was times like that that we did the Unabomber story and we were doing recreations and um, the scene was that there was this uh, bag left at the back door of this business. And so we and and the FBI told us, like, well, we have we have the info. We think maybe the Unabomber's in town. And so so just keep an eye out. And we were like, so we were freaked out. And so, you know, there's a. Uh, grocery bag by the back of the thing. We're like, wait, don't touch it. Who put that there? Is that ours? (laughs) Freak ourselves out. Sometimes the ghost stories would be like that too. You kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, I don't want to know anymore here. (laughs) 
So speaking of the ghost stories, like what was it like shooting some of those uh, unexplained, unknown sort of segments? Because I know those are very effects orientated. So there were probably a lot of different shots where you didn't have the effects yet. So you had to kind of work with what was there. Yeah, they were technically more complicated because you'd have to um, sometimes we'd have to put a, a, you know, a a green screen or a blue screen in or we'd have to put marks where something was going to be put in afterwards. And so. You know, you have people reacting to nothing. And, of course, one of the other challenges of those days of shooting in the real places was actors. I mean, you just don't have a pool of actors. And so a lot of times we're using amateurs. And so then it's doubly hard if they're trying to react to nothing. (laughs) Something's going to be added later. So those are challenges. They're also interesting. And And you kind of know, like, well, most ghost stories won't get solved because, you know, you're not going to prove anything. You'll see what you see. And we had some interesting experiences. We did the Billy the Kid story, and we were shooting this hotel in New Mexico. I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember what the name of the town was. But uh, it was this hotel where supposedly Billy the Kid died, where he got shot, he holed up in this hotel, but the lead and the bullets poisoned him, and eventually he died. Uh and they said, oh, this hotel is haunted by all kinds of people, blah, 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 blah. So uh, I had this room that was kind of in the middle of the top floor. And um, I went to go set up this bathroom. We are going to shoot a scene in the bathroom with this because it was partly about the um, this woman who supposedly haunted the hotel. I can't remember her backstory anymore. But um, so... I'm getting this bathroom set up and all the windows are closed and um, if I remember right, it was kind of winter so it wasn't very warm out. And all of a sudden the bathroom just smells completely like flowers. Like there's a million, you know, bunches of flowers in the bathroom. So I mm. come out and I tell these guys in the hotel, I was like, oh yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> oh, wow. And I was like, okay. And so I go to bed in this, in this room. I turn off the light. The door's locked. I wake up a couple hours later, light's on. I get up, I turn off the light, door's still locked, I go back to bed. I wake up a couple hours later, the light's on. And I'm just like, okay, so the door's locked. <laughs> I'm in bed, and the light keeps being on. So, you know, you don't know what to think of it sometimes, but it was always interesting. So yeah. when, you're, when your crew, when, when you guys are out doing those kind of like paranormal segments, um, mm-hmm. Did did you experience a lot of what the story was talking about as far as like if they're talking about a bunch of like windows opening and closing, a bunch of that paranormal kind of activity? Did the crew usually experience that or or maybe not? No, it was unusual because, you know, one of the things they say is that when there's a lot of people around, a lot of activity, it, stuff tends not to happen. Um, it usually happens when things are quiet. Or there, you know, there's only a few people around because I don't know. They say like just all that activity just kind of disturbs things. Um, so we didn't frequently see stuff, and sometimes we had to use places that weren't the actual place in order to, you know, yeah, do a recreation. So I don't, yeah, I don't know if you were involved in the uh, Tallman House segment, but I know for that one they shot it in the in the actual house, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, I think that was where was it? Do you remember? Uh, it was in Wisconsin. Um, 
it wasn't Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. I think it was kind of in that area. Um, it's one of the earlier segments. Um, it was Alan Tallman. I think I think they might have changed his name for the segment or whatever. But uh, that that they actually shot the recreation in in the actual house, and they attributed the paranormal on the show they were attributing the paranormal activity to some bunk bed they were saying once the bunk bed was purchased then all this weird stuff started happening oh yeah i don't think i was on that one there were basically three or four of us um you know working on the show as dps and usually at least two at the same time in different places okay Cool. Mike, Mike, go into your well of questions for another one. Okay, yeah. I, I got I got another one that's sort of related to this sort of paranormal thing. Just one more. Like, what was your favorite sort of paranormal episode that you worked on or segment? Oh, uh, that's easy. It was called Hudson Valley UFO. Oh, great one. And uh, the thing that was different about that one is so many people saw the same thing in a continuous time frame across different um, towns as this thing passed over. And so you had all kinds of police department. There was recorded chatter of the police describing what they saw. So there was such a trail of evidence there that you don't usually get. And of course, you know, the problem is you don't have the evidence you really need, which is the, you know, the crashed spaceship or whatever. <laughs> uh, and I remember vividly that one that, um, one of our key interviews was a guy who was an IBM executive and he watched this thing go over his house and all this stuff. And when he talked about it, it kind of ruined his life because people are like, Oh, you're crazy. And even though all these different people in police departments and everything saw it and it was documented the path of this. So it wasn't like, you know, he, he's the only guy. And, um, so that was a really strong one to me because there's so many witnesses and the description was all, you know, pretty much the same of this giant, you know, thing going overhead. Um, that that was that was the strongest one we did, I think. The other really interesting one to me was um, Socorro, New Mexico, about um, you know crashed alien spaceship at the secret facility, Area 51. And we interviewed this guy who, of course, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of stories you never know, but, but we interviewed this guy who had been working for an undertaker in town. And he, at the time, I think he was like 16 years old. So I think he was still in high school. And the undertaker sent him to the Area 51 to, I forget, he, they said, go there and pick up a body or something. And so he went there, and as he was going down the hallway, he looked, and he, and he saw this alien, you know, corpse being operated on. <laughs> and he, he basically said that he had never, never told anyone this story because they would just say he was crazy. But he was going to die, and he just wanted to tell the story before he died. Wow. So... You know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of value to him making that up because no. he's not like, I'm going to be famous. He's like, I'm going to be dead. So, um, and his description was quite extensive. Um, I think in that same segment, we had the supposed autopsy footage that appeared around that time. 
which we determined was completely bogus. One of our other camera operators, uh, Kenji Luster, who um, is a very techie guy, he looks at it and he said, well, there's a continuous shot that's too long for the roll of film that fits into the camera they said it came from. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, And there were other things there too, but he was like, so that makes that impossible. Um, but the story, to me, that interview was really strong because it's like, well, what's the motivation for him to make this up? You know, he's going to be dead. He, he's, he hasn't told anybody. And he'll probably be dead before the show airs. So it's not like, you know, you just wonder like, well, uh, why would it, why would you do it if it didn't happen? I wonder so, if that, that autopsy video that you're talking about. I wonder if that's that famous one that kind of broke out that was in black yeah. and white. Where yes, it is. Okay. It, it was bogus. Yeah, the one that's that they had a special on uh, Fox yeah. hosted yeah. by Randall Frakes. He's like, mm -hmm. "Are you an autopsy? Fact or fiction? Like it's fiction. Yeah, fiction. <laughs> it, it looks <laughs> like you really guys good, figured though. that out before it even aired, right? I guess like you saw it probably before they aired it on TV and stuff well, before like that. the special. Yeah, it, it, bits and pieces of it had appeared, mm -hmm. but before the special aired for sure. I think the special came later. Um. That was one of the rare times when we interacted with, you know, controversial s stuff like, you know, that that new evidence of something. Although a lot of times our story would be driven by something new that came out. It would be a book or something new, mm -hmm. new fact would come out or something. Yeah. But, I mean, it was amazing to me. The show, the first story that I did, I think, was about this guy, John Burns, who um, had an affair with this woman. Um. Her husband found out. This was in Michigan somewhere. And um, had an affair with this woman. Her husband found out. Uh, he came and shot the husband. He came to her house and shot the husband. And then disappeared. And they never found him. And when we did the story, it was 17 years old. And... Um, the night that the story aired, and this was, like I said, this was the first story that I did, I think. The night the story aired, some guy called and said, oh, I know that guy. He's over in this, you know, retirement home. And so the police went and he said, oh, well, I've been, you know, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> I was got tired, of looking over, got tired of looking over my shoulder. <laughs> so that was when I realized the power of the show to actually solve cases. I was like, I mean, this is a 17-year-old dead cold case and, you know, gets solved in, you know, within an hour of the show airing. So, of course, because of that, most of the police departments in the country just loved us. I mean, they would bend over backwards for us because we would solve cases for them. And um, so that was a great thing because it just meant we had so much cooperation and a lot of small towns, you know, if you have the chief of police on your side and the mayor, everybody else is just like, well, what can we do? You know, so um, so it was great that way. And I think it, it it's it's great to work on a show that has some value beyond its entertainment. And I think the show did a lot of good in that way. I mean, sure. I mean, it was made to be entertainment and make money. But at the same time, it solved crimes. The some of the most affecting ones are people who found their lost family members through the mm -hmm. show. They were just yeah. so, I mean, their whole lives, people who were adopted and found their real parents or found their siblings. And, um, 
you know, people who were in Vietnam with somebody they never got to thank, all those kind of stories. I mean, yeah. uh, the people were so happy when they, you know, got closure on things. And even stories where the ending was sad. I remember we did this one in Oregon about this guy who went out fishing and he disappeared. And they never found him. And so uh, we went up to um, use this underwater robot submarine to try and find the, sh- the boat. And we went out, of course, ironically, we went out and um, it was, the the port was Port Orford in Oregon. They called it Port Awful because the weather was so frequently terrible. And we went out and there was a storm and it was like 30 foot waves and Whoa. we were out there for 12 hours. We couldn't, they couldn't put the submarine in. It was hopeless because it would just be destroyed and so it was just kind of a ride to nowhere. Everybody was everybody was sick as a dog, but they said they had hooked um, they had hooked something right near where the bay let out, and so um, eventually they went back to check that out, and that was the boat, and they found the boat. Um, so, but we were out there with the guy's brother who had. It was so cartoon. We're out there, you know, in the 30-foot waves, six seconds apart. The boat is just, you know, all over the place. And the guy, and we're all, you know, seasick. And this his, this fisherman, his brother's out there, and he's got a wooden leg. All he needed was a parrot. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and an iPad. And, he, yeah. and, he's, sit, and he, he's sitting there eating a candy bar. And we're like, oh, my God. We're like, Lauren, what do you do on a day like this? He said, oh, I'd never go out on a day like this. <laughs> <laughs> we were just like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. So I also was wondering, uh, how did they, do you know how they did some of these like practical and like visual effects for the show, like for the more complex sort of UFO scenes and ghost well, yeah. stuff? A good example is Hudson Valley UFO. We, um, we, what would happen is we would shoot 16 millimeter film for most of the show, but if we had stuff that had effects, we would sometimes shoot 35 millimeters so that they had more to work with in the effects afterwards, so that it would match better when they came back with the other footage. Um, so in that case, we got this giant crane. I think it was like a 70 foot crane, and they built the, my gaffer Kurt Pepper. He they got this truss, and so they built this truss into a triangle because people had described the ship as a kind of triangle and just put a bunch of lights around the triangle and then left the middle part empty. So when we shot it, we were shooting um, the ship, and it was just a triangle with a bunch of lights, but of course in the middle you don't see much because the lights kind of you know flare out, and then the lights would, were also lighting things on the ground so you didn't have to go back and do all the effects of the effect of that ship light on the ground and then they added the details of the ship in special effects oh so was that cgi or was that uh yes like okay Mm -hmm. it was early cgi so it was limited what we could do with the budget in those days with cgi it was kind of yeah yeah there were some of them that were you know definitely early cg you know but uh it adds to the charm of the show for me um yeah it's kind of retro now (laughs) yeah (laughs) So, uh, speaking of film, uh, what are the differences between shooting a TV show like Unsolved Mysteries versus a feature film like The Strangeness? 
Ah, okay. Uh, well, the television show has all kinds of um, limits imposed by um, the style of the show and the story you're doing. If you're doing a feature, essentially you're restricted by the script, but you're writing the script, so you kind of create your own restrictions. And then the budget has its own effect. But um, the show, you're, it's challenging because you have a lot of different people doing stories in a lot of different places with a, a, a million variables, but it needs to all fit together as if it's part of the same thing. And when you're doing a feature, you don't have that. You usually have one DP who's shooting everything and one director and um, so on the, on the Unsolved Mysteries, you have multiple DPs and multiple directors and all kinds of different stories. So it's a challenge to make all that meld together. So the style of the show very much defines some of what you're doing when you're out there. You kind of know, um, you know the, the sort of landscape that you're in because the show has its style, has a pretty good groove. So... That's the biggest difference. And then, uh, you know, in a feature, you're shooting pieces of the same story over time. And with Unsolved, we shoot a lot of different stories. And so usually a story would shoot not more than over a week, period of a week, um, which is a lot these days. They'd never do that long. But um, so you're constantly moving from one story to the next. So one of the challenges is keeping the story straight figuring out, okay, wait, then this is for next week's story. Because <laughs> sometimes we'd go on a trip for two or three weeks and do, you know, three or even four stories, just one after the other. And it can be hard to keep it all straight. Yeah, um, I got to say, you guys made it look easy. And it sounds like to me that it wasn't. So would you say it was harder to shoot for Unsolved Mysteries than it was for a feature film? No, I think one of the nice things about Unsolved is then you're working with a crew that you know generally, and you have all, you, you know, we had good support, we had great people helping us, um, and then there'd be local people who would fill in positions, but you've got a team that's been working together, uh, so it really, that that made it easier that you just, my gaffer, Kurt Pepper and I, sometimes I'd just look at him and I wouldn't say anything, he'd know what I'm thinking about. And I'd nod my head or I'd shake my head, no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he'd do something. So, you know, you get the kind of relationship where you're just, you're working with a great team and that kind of support um, just, you know, makes every day, you know, it, that, you know, it's enjoyable. And um, on a feature, it takes a while to develop the crew and the groove for the show. So that was one of the advantages we have of the show. So I think in the end, I mean, the, the show was easier because you have so many already predetermined pieces in place when you start a story. Yeah. Um, speaking of the show, uh, what was it like working with Robert Stack? Robert Stack is just one of the greatest people on the face of the earth. <laughs> that's so, all I can tell I'm you. I'm so glad to hear that. That's what I always figured. Uh, that, that's what I always thought, too. It's really And nice politically, to we were from opposite ends of the spectrum, but, you know, it was... Just those, he was from that era when, you know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill used to go have lunch together and talk about stuff. And he was just a great guy. He was incredibly funny, which you wouldn't really, because I didn't, there was a DP who usually did the host stuff. And I only filled in when there was, you know, a conflict, somebody couldn't do it. So I didn't do the host all the time. 
But whenever I did, I just uh, it took me a while to realize how funny Robert Static was because he would be standing there and you're setting up or lighting or whatever, and he's doing a monologue. And unless you're within three feet of him, you won't hear it. He's just doing it to kind of entertain himself. And it's hysterical. So he just was... He was really an amazing person. He was fluent in French. He 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 was a great guy. And he had, I mean, you know, the hard part for Unsolved is that nobody's ever going to be able to replace Robert Stack. No, he's irreplaceable. They tried <laughs> he to was do it just, with Dennis Farina. It didn't work. <laughs> he was the, Now, that doesn't mean Unsolved couldn't start up again and, and, you know, succeed. It's just that he had an amazing, unique set of things going for him. One was that he had a fan base of people who were a little older who already knew who he was. Um, and then by doing the show, he generated a whole new generation of people who, you know, were crazy about him. So, you know, he had this kind of appeal across the generations and across different genres. You know, he, he had this, um, you know, that sort of unsolved mystery, uh, scary narrator guy persona, but at the same time he'd done comedy, he'd done everything. So he was great. Actually, he just you know what can I say? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Do you remember any of the funny things that he said? Do you remember any of that stuff? You know, it's funny. It all just goes by. I don't. I don't immediately yeah. come to one. I, I I remember a funny thing that happened while we were getting ready to shoot him once. Cause we had we were getting setting up this dolly shot, and it was a long, long dolly shot. Uh, probably 25 or 30 feet with a, one of those Fisher dollies, you know, a big heavy dolly. And the, in order to get the shot, the track, the, the ground went way down on one side. And so it was way built up like five or six feet above the ground on one end. And they were rehearsing the shot and it's, I've, something happened. Somebody was looking like, oh, what's that? And then they forgot the end of the track and the dolly started to go off the end of the track. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and Stack was like, hey, <laughs> but he was endlessly had stories um he, he i think he was telling me stories about being in france i want to say is it possible in the 20s or maybe it was his when he was in his 20s on the streets doing you know stuff just yeah he, he, had, he had quite a life yeah it sounds like it yeah, that's one interesting thing that we've found from uh, doing this podcast. Because, like, obviously, me and Mike are we're we're younger. You know, I'm we're both 28. I think he's 27 or whatever. And you know, w our generation, we grew up as kids. You know, almost in diapers, watching unsolved mysteries, usually with a grandparent or a parent mm -hmm. or something like that. And um, you know, even from a young age, I recognize that this show stood out amongst the other shows at that time because of the quality of the show and because of Robert Stack and, you know, his quote unquote creepy voice and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I also love the stories and we found since doing this podcast that most of our fan base is around our age, if not maybe a little bit older. And it's kind of the same thing. It's like we grew up watching this show as kids. And now that we're adults, like we, it, 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 we want to revisit it and, and we want to we want more of it so it thrilled us to hear yeah. that they're bringing it back to amazon prime especially the stack episodes because honestly right, the originals yeah honestly the farina ones it, it just it, it it took the heart of the show and it kind of gutted it 
to me because I mean, you know, you got the, they gutted the music, the original music, which was brilliant. The uh, composer who did the original music for the show, and they yeah, no, I, your piece on that I thought was right on it, and it made me laugh, and it was all <laughs> on <you>. target. <laughs> nothing was as good as the original, and and I know that there's a desire to bring it back in its original form. Of course, I don't know stack, but. Um, so, so that's a good thing. I'm, now, here's a question for you. I'm curious. I'm always curious because I ask people this. How old were you when your parents decided that you were old enough to watch Unsolved Mysteries? Now, for me, <laughs> for me, it was one of those things to where my, my mom's mom, who lived in Massachusetts, she would come down and visit, and, and it was rare that she would visit. So when she would visit, it was kind of like she could do whatever she wanted and my you know my mom wouldn't really tell her hey you know my son probably shouldn't be watching this show so i was like seven <laughs> <laughs> i was like seven okay. i was like seven or eight years old and my grandma that was her favorite show so she'd put that show on and i i was just allowed to watch it with her um so like that show cuz i'm I'm sorry, go ahead. I met a lot of people who, who watched it starting when they were like eight or nine. And I was a little surprised, but, um, you know. I know. You wouldn't think that it would be a show that would be appropriate for a kid. And, and it wasn't appropriate for me because I got nightmares from that show for a long time afterward. <laughs> okay. But that was part of the charm, that, though. I was going to say, that didn't deter you from being fond of it. Yeah, no, it didn't. It, it was kind of like one of those things that it, uh, it, it made it more interesting. It made me seek it out, you know, because I've said this before and I'll say it again. You know, if I was just watching Unsolved Mysteries for nostalgia value, there's a lot of really crappy shows out that I would still be watching from that era. You know, if I'm just a, right, right, yeah. you know, if I'm just a nostalgia fiend. But no, it's mm -hmm. not just nostalgia. It's the fact that this was a quality show and even from a young age I, I recognize that you know especially a lot of the ufo segments are my personal favorites um with the fraud segments being a close second place so yeah i mean um i they they released this ultimate box set a while back and um i i bought that up and i've i've watched those discs so many times that there's scratches on them at this point but yeah i mean i just i just really uh, thought it was a great show, and uh, the Farina when it, episodes when it came out, I was excited because I was like, "Oh, they're bringing it back, they're revamping it." And then I see the Farina, what they did with the show, where they cut everything up and they added new graphics on the screen to make it look more hip and appeal to the younger people. I'm like, "Oh man, they they gutted this show. It's nothing." They and I think the show was at the really sort of hostage of that network and what they wanted to do with it. Yeah, um, I love the bit in your piece where you say, you know, as soon as it was done being television for women, it was television for men. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is ironic. That is so which ironic. just goes to show that you know the thing about Unsolved was that it was it had such a wide audience, and ironically, I think in in a sense, all the shows that came after, or at least most of the shows that came after Unsolved, trying to do the same thing, didn't do it as well. And part of that is they they didn't have the money because when Unsolved was at its peak television was also kind of at its peak. And so, um, you know, they had a budget you just don't get anymore. And um, it was interesting the show managed to go quite a long ways as, as you know, the general amount of television audience dwindled and the, and the budget was cut back some. But other shows, you know, they're just starting at a disadvantage because they didn't have stack and they didn't have the budget and they didn't have the kind of you know, in, in a lot of ways, Unsolved was really made like a bunch of little features. 
with art directors and going to the real place and all this stuff. I mean, a lot of logistics and, and support and stuff. And at the end, the budget was, had to be cut because not as many people were watching and we shot more stuff all around Los Angeles. But still, it just had more resources, I think, than a lot of these other shows. And, you know, Terry and John, the people behind the show, were smart cookies and they, you know, they made a good show. Now, yeah, I, I mean, the only competition I can think of that could come close is America's Most Wanted. But America's Most Wanted definitely did not have the same budget because it was a Fox no. show. And you can tell when you watch the because they covered similar cases, uh, sometimes the exact same cases as Unsolved Mysteries did. And it, yeah. I always find it kind of funny to watch them back to back and kind of to compare yeah. them. And <laughs> yeah. like the reenactments on, on America's Most Wanted have not held up well. I remember watching that as a kid with my dad. And uh, yeah, as an adult, don't they don't hold up nearly as well as some of the reenactments for, for uh, most of the reenactments for Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, and that show, I mean, the show was successful in that they did, you know, they had the same sort of thing where they could they could solve crimes, but that's all they had. They had no other kind of stories. And it's still, the show went on, for, I don't know, is it still on? It went on forever and ever. They canceled they, it, and it, it, uh, John Walsh has a new show called The Hunt on CNN, yeah, which has right. actually better It's got better habits. resources, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they just didn't have the money to do the kind of things that we did. And I actually worked on one or two of those, um, but it was always, you felt like, hmm, well, they're, they're really struggling. In terms it's of not what the they same, have. right? Not the same, yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> not one, at all. One thing, um, when I was talking to Don Devereaux, did you? I mean, you you worked on the Charles Morgan case. That was the guy who had his tongue painted with LSD. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you yeah. know, you know about Don Devereaux. I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I ha when I had a conversation with him, he was telling me about how when Unsolved Mysteries went over to CBS, all of a sudden, um, I guess the uh, powers that be who were over John and Terry's head. They were really wanting to skew younger, so all the cases had to be younger, all the victims had to be younger. Everyone they wanted a young, try to get a younger audience. Now, did you have any experiences with those issues or challenges with that? Uh, well, not really, because you know, by the time I do it, the story's already formed, and we're just trying to tell it. I do remember them that the word was they they wanted to capture a younger audience. Who knew that the way they would do that is by getting the generation that was n not old enough to vote yet <laughs> to yeah. want, like the show? But ironically, put on some show that replaced Unsolved Mysteries with Ice T in it, and yeah. it just tanked. So oh, <laughs> it didn't dude, I didn't even money. know there, what show was that. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I forget what it was even now. I didn't watch it. Was it like a spinoff of uh, the uh, Law and Order thing or something? Because <laughs> I know yeah. he was on the Law and Order show later um the, then it went to lifetime and was the budget slashed then is that when the budget was cut down was that on lifetime i don't think any original shows were made for lifetime yeah lifetime just they just did oh, okay. reruns it was syndicated on lifetime i thought there and was a couple seasons i, I read somewhere where like mm -hmm. see some of the later seasons were lifetime and then they went to spike I could be wrong. No, I think mm, the, the, the last season so. were on CBS, yeah. and then yeah. Lifetime oh, okay. syndicated it. 
Um, but Lifetime did breathe a new life into the show for sure, and that's I think that's where a lot of myself. That's where I that's where I discovered it. Yeah, and I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I know I was pretty young. I mean, I was I was I was reading at a high level when I was a kid, and so I was reading like a Time Life Reader's Digest Mysteries Done Explained book that's for like college age students when I was like six or seven. Hmm. And I was just really interested in the unknown and the unexplained. And I guess I just came across some of the reruns. My mom used to watch the show and I remember watching it with her. And then I would watch the reruns myself like late at night or, you know, in the after early in the morning or something before school. So uh, so I remember that. And I also remember the unexplained segments are my favorites when I was growing up. But then when I got older and I discovered some of the other ones, I, I like I like a lot of the other segments in the show, like fraud and murder and yeah. uh, the missing persons and stuff like that and treasures and and things like that. And also, I just was really interested in the show sightings as well. I don't know if you've seen that show. I, that I, yeah, I saw a couple of those. That didn't really have the, anywhere near the same budget either, but it focused specifically on unexplained stuff, so that mm -hmm. was right up my alley. Yeah, I have another yeah. te technical question. Um, Unsolved Mysteries, especially the early, the earlier ones, um, probably before it went over to CVS, they had, um, you know, I, I know, I know very little about, especially old. You know, you sh said you shot on film. I, I only shoot on like digital DSLRs and stuff right. like that yeah. now. Um, it had a look to it. It had like this almost kind of uh, uh, like a soft, like a very soft, uh, gr like a grainy kind of soft, almost um, kind of glow to it almost. All the interviews, segments and all that. How did you guys achieve that? Was that solely uh, from shooting on film as opposed to digital or? Well, some of it was film, but um, also it's just, you know, the way the everything's lit and the way it's shot because when it, it over time toward the end, it did go to, um, uh, some stuff being shot on digital and we were able to keep that look, um, going to some extent. But of course, um, in the very beginning there, um, wasn't the budget and, you know, until it was a hit, it didn't. So it kind of started out with limited resources and then it, it got better and then it, was you know in the top tier of just you know having a lot of support and then as the audience dwindled and the and the you know the tv audience also was starting to dwindle in overall then um they started to experiment with doing things digitally and um so it, it, some of it was film um when it first started to go to digital the quality of digital was not as good as film in terms of technically so it was a uh, more work to try and get that look out of out of digital nowadays um you know it, the technology's got to the point where you know features are mostly done digitally but back then it was it was early days of digital and, and uh, most of the shows were were done on film until the last couple of years and film was very forgiving and very uh, gave you a lot of stuff to work with in the editing process to make it look like you wanted to look like. So that was part of it. And I think it was one of the advantages we had, um, you know, for some years where we were shooting film and the competitors were all trying to do it on video and the video quality of the video yeah. wasn't 
just it technically wasn't that great yet. Yeah. Well, I, to me personally, I think uh, I miss films that are shot on film and not on digital. I think there's something there when something is shot on film, it feels so much more cinematic to me. Digital has this whole sort of thing where, especially with all this filtering stuff they're doing nowadays and artificial lighting, and I, I it just I notice it and it drives me nuts. And and I love how the old, you know, episodes of the show were shot on film. They use real lights on the set. You know, if we're trying to make some shadows or whatever, we're trying to create a certain mood. We're going to do it with lights and actual physical lighting, not shoot it without that and then or shoot it with the lighting and then try to add other lighting later with computer that doesn't really match up with the lighting in the room so yeah, no, do it doing it on the doing it for real on the spot you know really looks the best because you can see how everything's interacting yeah. um i think now digital has advanced to the point where you can get that look one of the things about film that was useful is that if you think about pixels in in film, the equivalent would be a grain of film, silver, and every frame of film, the pixels were randomly redistributed every frame, and so it gave it a sort of organic quality. Yes, that um, is harder to achieve. But the thing is, the digital's advanced to the point where I think it's crossing over where you might go to a feature and you wouldn't be able to tell if it was shot on digital or on film anymore. Sometimes. Um, yeah, but uh, so for us that was a great advantage because at the time if you shot video it, it just was a bunch of square things nailed to a perch there wasn't HD and it, you know it really wasn't great so um, it, it was nice at that time to be able to shoot film I, I mean I have a, a HD camera a 4K camera actually now and, and I love it but uh, when at that time when things were switching over i didn't love it because <laughs> yeah. the video wasn't very good yet <laughs> no so so uh i know you answered some of these before but i just thought i'd kind of go over some of these again like do you have any more like funny or crazy stories to share from your time at unsolved mysteries or on other sets that you worked on i remember we did this story um in north dakota in the winter and um I had a discussion with the production manager because we were going to fly to North Dakota and, and this big cold front was coming through. So on the Friday, we're talking about it. I'm saying, well, we have to re-grease the lenses because it'll be so cold that you won't be able to focus the lenses. It's just like trying to turn something that's stuck. And he's like, no, no, it's going to be fine. And while we were in flight, the temperature of the location we we're going to shoot at, the temperature dropped 60 degrees in one minute, setting a record for the largest temperature <laughs> drop ever anywhere in the country. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and I remember, so of course, you know, we would be doing these shots. I'd try to do a rack focus and it would be like, well, I can only, it's going to take 20 seconds because the lens is, grease is so cold. <laughs> <laughs> and then at a certain moment, we'd, we'd, we had a motorhome. We'd frequently have a motorhome for out, you know, where there isn't much to sort of headquarter in and I was stumping around doing something out in the snow and it was five below zero, I think. And sometimes you'd be setting up for a good part of the day for a big scene. And I looked around, I was like, nobody was outside anymore. I was like, what's going on? They were all in the motorhome getting warm because <laughs> it was <laughs> cold out. And then I had a shot to do, um, 
John Cosgo, who was the show director and one of the produ- and you know the producer along with Terry, he was very much um, the person the style of that show came from. And so one of his uh, signature shots was this kind of you know high overhead shot of everything. And those are difficult because when, as soon as you do that, you see everything. You got to get everything swept away out of the way. And so I was up in a uh, bucket. It was a like a telephone company, one of those kind of buckets for working on the power lines with the a camera. Cherry picker. Yeah, like a, a cherry picker, and the, and, the, and the tripod barely fit in the bucket. And it was five below zero. And so I tilted down, and I. Was the shot was getting set up, and I'm looking at it, and I breathed out, and the wind blew it back and froze my eye shut. <laughs> I didn't see anything from it? I was just like, "Oh yeah, okay." Wow, <laughs> there were a lot of those. Crazy. It was a great, crazy. great adventure. I mean, it really, every every story was, you know, a, a different adventure in some form. And even the sometimes we do a story where we all are like we think the story's bogus. <laughs> but something interesting would always happen. And so, you, even if you think, okay, I know everything about this story, you didn't. And so, it was always a a great adventure. Yeah, we kind of figured that, we kind of found that out ourselves with the Ghost Boy segment because we, we really liked that. And then we did some research on our own and then we're like, the this lady wrote a book and it's like ridiculous and it's over the top, like a ghost uh, car that like ran over people and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, okay. stuff. The mother of the son who Go- this Google par- car. Yeah. <laughs> so bad. It's, it's like she was trying to, you know, like cash in on her son's kind of ghostly experiences. And anytime I see anything like that, it, it kind of sullies the story a little bit to me because it's like, okay, so there's financial gain in this. So maybe, you mm. know, the, the bullshit meter kind of goes off in my mind a little bit. Ghost um, car showing up in a in a graveyard. <laughs> That's so spe- speaking of bullshit, I see I saw on your resume you worked on a uh, Penn and Teller uh, bullshit for Showtime. Uh, oh yeah, it's also great fun that show. Uh, I that like sh- that show. That I've show been watching was that fantastic. show lately. Uh, I loved that show. Yeah, that show um, when it ended, it was actually doing had its best ratings ever. <laughs> but whatever. That's Showtime yeah, for you. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Penn and Teller; those guys were really interesting guys, smart guys. Those are good shows. That frequently shocked me. What they, you know, the things they demolished. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> they got. I think they. When they did, they did one on um, Mother Teresa, and they got. I mean, I think they got death threats. It was just. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. So. Yeah, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that would happen, you know, with that type of you know, uh, fan base. Um, so we talked about a lot of the things that, you know, were good, you know, uh, set, you know, fun experiences on the set and things like that. Like, do you know of any sort of shoots that were bad, like the worst shoots ever or something like that? Not just from Unsolved Mysteries, it can be anything. Well, uh, in terms of Unsolved Mysteries, the shoots that I remember were bad were almost always weather. Yeah, because it was the thing that we couldn't control, and we we believed that there was some weird kind of subconscious tendency 
for us to get sent out to do a summer store in the winter or a winter store in the summer. <laughs> so I remember once we had this story that was about this guy who we went out on a boat with his wife and the boat sank and his wife died and he didn't. And there was a lot of oh yeah that speculation one. that maybe he'd killed her. Um, and so we went to do the recreation and it was supposed to be summer and we were on Lake Superior. So, uh, producer found a little bay of Lake Superior that was calmer and that was more controllable, but it was still November and we were shooting at night. And the last night we were shooting, um, so it's summer, so the actors are supposed to be like in the water, happy. It's fun, and you know, it's they're they're freezing, and <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a really good actress. Right and there. we're shooting I... all night. And we have this, you know, twelve thousand watt light up hanging out over the water on a crane, and um, you know, so it's, and divers in the water, so it's challenging, and and you know, safety is important. And at a certain moment, this huge gust of wind comes up, and basically breaks the light off the mount and of course happily our people had put safety chains on everything so it's hanging by the safety chain and hail is it's hailing and the hail is floating on the water so that it looks like styrofoam beads and the director said okay we're done we're going to finish the rest of this in LA (laughs) 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 but you know sometimes it was tricky because you're at the edge of what can be done and um, because you know no matter how many resources you have it's there's still an end to it and there's always stuff that's difficult but you know we had great support and people were always good and safe and careful so I've been on some shows that weren't so safe feeling but I won't name them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that segment. And I was like, he didn't do it. And then, like, the update. And I'm like, oh, he did do it. Okay, all mm-hmm. right. Well, that happens. Of, sometimes the scary time. ones were the people. Uh, well, we had one. I mean, I remember we, we shot one in, it was early on, too. I think it might have been part of the Unabomber. We were shooting in Seattle, and it never stopped raining. And so we ended up using the camera truck as a sort of, dolly and just so that we could keep things dry and and just like put the camera truck wherever we needed to be to shoot it but it was still you know never stops raining and so it's challenging but but also i think some of the scariest ones were people where we did this one with this guy and i i can't remember his name but he had his wife had disappeared and um the police really strongly believed that he killed her but they couldn't come up with a body and they couldn't get anything that proved anything on him and we went to interview this guy and he was very dicey about whether he was going to do the interview right up to the end and John Cosgrove the overall show director who wasn't he wasn't always on location but he, he, he was on this one he spent an hour convincing this guy to do the interview and then we did the interview and we were all totally convinced that he had killed her and it was just like, where's the body? So we figured, you know what? I bet the body's here in this yard somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy looked like the mole man. He looked like a Picasso painting. You know, his face had been put together from ten different things. And we were just kind of, we were kind of freaked out. We were like, well, 
is he going to kill us? It, it, you know, <laughs> what's going to happen here? It was spooky. I think I know which case you're talking about. That was the case of Monica Rizzo, right? Um, she was a music teacher, and he said he didn't like music. And in the end, they found her body, and they and the and the cops had the cops. They were so sure, like you know, her body's here somewhere, and they had dug up the yard and dug up the. He had like given them sort of false leads of where to make them think where she was, and in the end, she was in the comp. Her they found her skull in the compost pile. Oh geez. So it was just like, mm. uh, and you were right there, you know, technically. So so sometimes you we're kind of like, maybe we're a little too close to this story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's probably scarier than any sort of ghost thing or anything like that. That's for sure. Yeah. So I got one uh, last question here. Uh, do you think you left a personal stamp on the show Unsolved Mysteries? And if sh- and if so, what do you think it is? Oh, that's a really interesting question. My my instinct is to say, not really. I think I, um, I mean, yeah, we, we did sort of develop some new things along the way, but I think the key was that we we just managed to work all together to make it this relatively seamless thing, and and so. I don't think, I think um, maybe my, my thing would be I, I love to shoot handheld. So I think I even sort of subconsciously, naturally would tend toward pushing the show more toward handheld stuff. So if there was any contribution, that was probably it in terms of, you know, pushing the show in a direction. But I probably didn't do it consciously as much as it's just sort of my, my natural um thing that I'm comfortable and good at. So All right. Well, we uh we really want to thank you for your time, Kevin. Uh, and appreciate well, you yes. reaching out. I mean, you you were a part of um you know, a, a fantastic show that not only was entertaining but also uh served a a purpose to better society and it's rare that shows like that come out and you were a piece of, of that. So, you know, we are very, very appreciative that you took the time to talk to us and answer some of these behind the scene questions that. And this is honestly like the best Christmas present I could get to talk to somebody <laughs> who worked on the show. You know, that's been like a dream of mine. So thank you. Well, and, I was, uh, I, I was so entertained by your piece and, um, so it was great. I thought, oh, this is really cool. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, it's great that there's such a base out there of people who are, you know, still, uh, you know, loyal to the show. And hopefully it can get some new stuff going. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, the new uh, Amazon Prime. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I read that uh, they are working on adding new updates to uh, the cases. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, um, they said sometime in 2017. So, all right, Kevin. Well, it was great talking to you, man. We really yes. appreciate it. Okay. All right, was man. It was fun. Have a yeah, good rest. It sure was. Have a good rest of your day, and I'll have e- a I'll email, have a happy holiday. Yes, I'll email you the uh, episode whenever we get it out. If you want to take it, uh, take a listen to it. Okay, great. Thanks. And I'll I'll poke around and see if any, any of the people I know are want to talk to you. Excellent. Yeah, please do. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
All right, so that was that was the interview with Kevin. He was awesome. He was super nice. Uh, I'm super thankful that Mike was able to be a part of that because, as you heard, Mike had way better questions than I did. Mike thought of all those questions beforehand. Mike being the movie guy, um, I guess. Yeah, I'm really glad that Josh told me about it and uh, I was able to join him along with Kevin because this was this is definitely a dream come true to be able to talk to somebody who actually worked on the show. I never thought in a million years that I would really ever do that. So that was really, really cool. And I would probably say it's one of the best Christmas presents I could probably get this year. Probably, you know, this mic is really nice too, but I mean, this is a pri- this is priceless. This is a priceless moment. Yeah, and you know, Kevin Kevin is a very obviously, you know, he he he's a very aware guy and he's very sm- he's, he came off as very smart and um, you know, knowledgeable and uh he was just he was really nice. He he just down to earth. Um super happy we were able to talk to him. So uh yeah, we hope you guys enjoyed that and we will not see you again until after Christmas. So I hope you get that that um you remember that object that uh, I said that might be waiting for Tommy Burkett um, last episode? Well, if that's what you're hoping for for Christmas, I hope you get that as well. Um, so <laughs> 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 I don't know. I don't even want to say it, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. All right. So anyway, uh, you can find us on YouTube. I am YouTube.com slash Dancing with Ghosts. Uh, I do a bunch of bullshit that's not worth watching. And you can find Mike on YouTube, um, youtube.com slash OCP communications. I also do a bunch of bullshit that's not worth watching. Yeah, we both do (laughs) bullshit videos that aren't worth your time, so don't go there and waste your time on watching that crap. Anyway, everybody have a a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah. Uh, Ramadan isn't anytime soon, is it? I don't even know what Ramadan is. Ramadan is the high, uh, the high holiday of the uh, Islamic uh, Muslim oh, faith. The high holiday. High holiday. So they get they get high on hashish and and uh, enjoy Ramadan. Just to clarify, Mike was the one who said that comment, not me. I, I'm just hey, it's a joke. It's too late. Infidel. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody have a Merry Christmas. Please stay safe. Please make it through to uh through the holidays and join us for next week's podcast we love you all um well it's not the end of the year podcast yet because i think there's another wednesday in december but uh anyway really yeah i think the 28th i feel like yeah 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 so it's the 28th so we're not it's not the end of the new year's one where we'll really kiss your ass for sticking with us this whole time but (laughs) we'll we'll start by you know a little bit of foreplay by saying that we thank each and every one of you who've joined from since we began in June until now. Um, thank you, and we hope yeah. you enjoy this one. That's all I have to say. Yeah, thank you so much, and uh, have a happy holidays and Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>